Hello listeners, it's Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show I've got another super guest. We have Eric Wahlberg here, the ex-Sega producer himself. Now Eric shares some amazing stories about working at the iconic Sega company back in the 90s. He's worked on some real classic titles including Eternal Champions, Rystar, Virtual Fighter, and he shares some amazing details about working at Sega Soft and the first ever online multiplayer fighting game called Net Fighter. Eric shares some amazing stories. He also talks about his time at EA and lots more in between. So sit back and enjoy a great chat with a true retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hello listeners and viewers potentially because we're back for another Arcade Attack podcast. It's Adrian here and I've got another super guest on the show. Uh, a few months ago um, we had Michael Lathan on, we've had him twice actually, a, a good friend of the show. And actually I'd class him as a friend now, which is, I can't believe I'm saying that, believe it or not. And he introduced uh, one of his friends to the show, uh, Eric Warburg, and another amazing Sega legend. He's, he's worked some amazing games, and it is a real honour, real pleasure to to get you on the show. So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Adrian. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm honoured. I think uh, you've interviewed some amazing people already, and just to be on your podcast and be able to share some stories, I think will be really exciting. So, thank you back. No, honestly, the pleasure is all ours, and um, we are huge Sega fans. You know, for for many of us on Arcade Attack, it's probably our favourite company uh, growing up. So, just getting the chance to speak to another person, I think you said, you know, before foot on the ground kind of guy, really amongst the thick of it during the '90s of the Sega sort of golden era. So, thank you. Um, before we talk about Sega, and uh, that'll take the bulk of into into, I'm pretty sure. I'd love to sort of talk to you about your kind of earliest memories about gaming growing up, and how did you get the passion? And have you got like a favorite game sort of in those early days? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my first memory is very clear. I was nine years old, and Pong came out for the uh, home system, right? And it was literally just Pong. I mean, this is I think 1976 or something. And uh, my dad bought it for himself, and uh, he let me play it, obviously. And, of course, being a nine-year-old, having time with a Pong machine, I played it constantly, right? And so he had his friends come over for a big party, you know, a bunch of adults, and I'm the one nine-year-old walking around, you know, messing things up. And they started playing Pong against each other. And then they said, hey, let Eric play, right? And so I went in there, and I just destroyed everybody. And what was funny was my, I, I remember one of the people, he goes to my dad, isn't it a little bit late? Shouldn't you be going to bed? And I literally was sent to bed because I was kicking all their ass in Pong. So, um, so that was, that was fun. It was, and then, uh, you know, I played so many systems for so many years. It went next was like the breakout console machine that had yeah. several games on it. Uh, and then once had, you know, blackjack, blackjack and other ones. So I learned how to play some poker games at a very young age playing those. Um, and then uh, I can truncate some of the stuff and elongate some of the stuff. So in general, though, you know, I played the Intellivision quite a bit. Um, that was that was probably my system. Obviously, I played the Atari uh, as well. Oh yeah, um, yeah. 
by other memories. So um, aside from just endless hours of playing games like, uh, geez, like the Dungeons and Dragons, Treasure of Tarmin on the television, or just all these random games that I just had a great time with, was um, I remember I would go to uh, the 7-Eleven uh, and I started playing arcade machines quite a bit, probably around the age of, around the age of 11 maybe. And uh, I mean, that was the golden era of arcade games, like because there was no systems that were even close. And so, um, you know, played everything from Double Dragon uh, to Karate Champ. Um, and uh, actually, uh, the Star Wars arcade game, you know, that vector graphics game with the, the voiceover. Oh, I was just in love with that game. And I, I got good enough where I played the hardest mode and I could beat it on a quarter or 50 cents or whatever it was back then. Um, and then also playing at a nearby 7-Eleven before I was driving, uh, my buddy and I would walk down and they had a, a game called Kangaroo. You ever heard of it? It rings a bell, actually. Is it yeah. platform game or? Platform game. And yeah. essentially you're, a, you're a, a, a jumpy kangaroo that also has boxing gloves and you you punch yeah. these apes and you punch the things that throw it, you jump over them. I got really, really good at the game. And obviously nobody cares. It's our, it's yeah. kangaroo, but I was really good at it. And I always had like all the top 10 high scores in there and um, playing that for hours. It's just good memories, right? Just good memories. Yeah. And then uh, I guess one more memory that I would share uh, would be, I also started playing Street Fighter a lot. Oh. Now, granted, there are some absolute monsters out there. You go to the arcades. But I would play Zangief, and I was pretty darn good at learning how to block and had good timing with my throws and things. And I would school people quite a bit. And I remember one time, this is the memory I'm trying to tell you about, yeah. was that I, I went to a random 7-Eleven. I was such an addict. I was probably like 20 then, I think. And I remember driving by uh, a 7-Eleven, and I'm like, I want to play Street Fighter. And they're all back then, uh, when I was every every 7-Eleven had Street Fighter, right? And so I go in there and I'm playing, and the guy kid comes in to play me because that was pretty common. And I kept beating him, and I noticed he got frustrated. He's probably like 12 or something, 13 maybe. <laughs> and he looks up at me and he says, "Aren't you too old to be playing this?" He says, oh. to me, right? and I said, "I said if you beat me, I'm too old." Was my answer. Um, that being said, again, many people, like even actually Mike Latham could beat me pretty well with Chun-Li. I think it was, it was about 50-50, I think. But I, I'm not the best Street Fighter, but just good memories, right? So yeah. those are some of my memories of it. Uh, now you're talking about how kind of it got me going into wanting to get into video games was a point you're going to say, right? I'd, I'd love to know how, was it always in the, in the background you want to work in the industry? So, so no. So here, what's interesting is I think a lot of, my uh, interests and a lot of my life experience led up to where I was going to be doing video games, but I never knew it. So additionally, and very much related, around the age of 10 or so, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And I still I still play it. I'm still a huge fan. And I you know have all those 3D terrain and hundreds of painted minis and all that, and trying to have a really amazing experience for my players and it's, it's it's a great it's a great great game how that relates is it teaches you how to be creative how to problem solve how to entertain how to because you're 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 almost like in a beta test all the time of how do i get people to understand uh clues to a puzzle how do i pose problems that are solvable how can i be um reflexive and uh improvise uh, what would happen next based on what they do those things are very much what designers kind of have to figure out, aside from the, the technical part. And uh, and so 
with playing video games a lot, playing role-playing games a lot, um, I just had interests, right? Like a lot of people. I mean, how many people play D&D and play video games in the 80s, right? A lot. Yeah. And so, um, so then uh, I was going to a junior college, and in all honesty, I was screwing around because I was working in a grocery store that paid pretty well back then. Um, they don't so much now, but they had a good union. And I was there for uh, seven years. Oh, wow. And uh, it was, I, I was also doing martial arts. So I thought maybe I might do something with that someday. But really, I was just kind of, you know, making more money than I needed and enjoying my life. And things were pretty chill. Um, and uh, then the owner of this place called Macaulay's Food Villa, it was in San Jose. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away at only 37. Oh, and yeah, it was, it was very, it's very sad. And what's funny is bad things can become big stories, big changes in life. So because he passed away, the the owner, the mom, decided uh, to just close down the stores, like three stores. And so when it closed down, I was temporarily looking for some work. And my roommate, he was working a lot of temp jobs, and he happened to be working at Sega as a tester at the time. And so he said, hey, uh, they're hiring. You want to see, you know, get, get a job as a temp. And I said, cool, you know, it doesn't pay as much, but I can do this for a little while and then go back to grocery store, right? Because again, that's where I made the money. And uh, so uh, this was back when Sega was just gaining all the momentum, right? Like Sonic yep. the Hedgehog 2 was, I think, in test at this time, whatever. And um, so I came in and they needed bodies. And so they just brought me in. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you that my very first experience when I first walked in the door was uh, just as like, it was really cool. I was like, wow, look at all this Sega paraphernalia and stuff, all these, you know, was, uh, the activity and the energy is like, it's kind of cool. But I felt like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm just going to come in and test games and do my job, right? So um, uh, they sat me down and uh, it was so packed at this point. There was an office and I was sitting on a floor with another tester and we had a... Um, we had a, a kind of a Game Gear uh, ROM kit thing where you play a Game Gear game on a system where you could put in a ROM chip, right? And so we're playing uh, Streets of Rage 2 for the Game Gear. This is the very first game that I ever tested. And once I started playing, I was like, wow. And I remember turning to the guy saying, "You get, we get paid for this? It was so cool to be able to do that, right? Yeah. There's so much more to it, right? But, uh, but still, that's that, wow, this is really cool. And uh, so, uh, again, I'm going to try to um, answer more questions instead of going off on too much of tangents. Ah, but, okay. But, uh, but maybe about, I'm going to say maybe a month or so in, um, one day I was walking to the break room. So the break room was where Street Fighter was. And Mike Latham had actually purchased that machine, uh, which I found out later because he wanted uh, as kind of a way to play out some ideas he had for his fighting game, which again, I didn't know about any of this yet. So I'm walking down the hall. I remember off to the left, I see is um, uh, all these cool, looks like fighting game characters, right? And they're they're done this really cool art. Uh, I think I think this was by Ernie Chan who did Conan uh, art back in the day. I'm pretty sure it was him, but uh, it's really cool art. And then I saw stacks of martial art videos as well as Panther Productions like, how to do Jeet Kune Do, Taekwondo, Kempo. It was like, and I, and been doing martial arts since I was thirteen. I was like, wow, this is this is really cool. I was just like, literally, just excited 
just that it existed. Like, wow, this. And so I started, Mike Latham was there, didn't know who he was. And, uh, and so I started talking to him, found out he's the producer and he's designing this game. And just in absolute excitement and interest with no ulterior motives, I said, hey, if I could do anything to help, I've been playing video game, uh, fighting games for a long time, doing martial arts for a long time. Uh, I'd be happy to do anything I could to help because it sounds like a really cool game, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not long after that, he reached out and he asked if I could be on a team that would be sent to Sega Interactive to uh, do some uh, game balancing on the game, which is kind of like what I found out later was an audition for being a system producer, but I didn't know that. Wow. wow. And so, um, so I, that I guess I, I'll stop there because I can keep going all the way up to now. But um, but the, he he allowed me the opportunity to then go in and do that. Um, I guess I will tell the one part, which is because at this point I'm still a temp. Right. So um, I'll tell you more about my Eternal Champions experience later because I think it needs its own little kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got questions about that. Yeah, because it's so important, right? But um, so when I was working on the game at Sega Interactive, essentially the the game balancing was essentially to get in the nitty gritty of how does the game play, how do we make it, you know, the the frames of animation uh, as it relates to the gameplay, the damage, the recovery rates. Uh, modifying some collision boxes with the engineers to make sure that everything kind of jived, just trying to make it as good as we could because it also had a super tight schedule. The game was huge, lots of marketing behind it and all that stuff. And so um, luckily I was, what, 25 at the time, and so I didn't die, but we worked a lot of hours. It was my buddy Harry Chavez and I, who ended up, he actually was my best friend for quite a few years after this. But he and I, we just killed ourselves, but had a great time working on that. And then when I came out of it, uh, a little more time went by, and uh, at that point, an opportunity came up, and uh, Mike said, I want you to be an assistant producer for me. And I was like, that's amazing, cool, I would love to do this. Wow. One one side note I would make on all this, which is, because you're saying about how I got into it, which uh, was, I didn't think that I could do it, because like, well, I need to know how to code, or I need to be able to do some kind of art or something else that would require an education related to that. Back then, back in the early 90s, there was very little, right? It was it was still a lot of kind of Wild West kind of stuff and, you know, do you have the skill set? And so once I saw the things that were involved with being a producer, which is interpersonal communication, problem solving, uh, being analytic, uh, communicating, getting people to talk to, to each other, um, making decisions based on information. Those are just kind of things that you kind of have as traits, I think, or at least you can. And so, I, and I said, yeah, you know what? I, I think I can actually do this. And um, that was also a big thing for me because uh, I hadn't really done a lot in my life so far as like exciting. Like I was very happy with my life, right? I'm like anybody, you don't need, you don't need to be doing video games to be important. But uh, I said, this is my opportunity. Like I knew as soon as I had, even before I was assistant producer, I, once I realized what it entails, said, Mike Latham knows me, I'm doing some high profile projects, I am going to absolutely kick ass no matter what it takes. And so that was really why I was able to make that leap and impress Mike enough to give me the opportunity and then continue to work hard to make it worth it to make sure that Mike yeah. hired me for the right reason and not like, oh, he didn't turn out so well, right? So, so that's basically that. Incredible. Um, yeah. That's, that's an amazing story. 
Um, now, I don't want to belittle game testers. You know, nothing. You know, it's not. It's a really important job. And you, but how long were you doing that for, Eric? Then not not that long. Yeah. It sounds. Yep. So a year and a half. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, so a good chunk of time. What games yeah. did you test? And was oh, there any geez. particular moments that you thought, wow, this is I'm making a big difference to this one game? And how would you explain yeah. a game tester? Because I think they sometimes not get a bad name, but they almost they don't yeah. always get the limelight. Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I'm glad. I know we talked a little bit before this, and uh, I wanted to talk about the, the test department. So um, one of the coolest things about Sega Test was that it was at a time when you couldn't just do a patch and, you know, be like cyberpunk and just ship it, and then we'll fix it later, right? Um, you had to have games that were solid, and uh, and that meant that testers were had a lot of responsibility to make sure they find those uh, innocuous crash bugs or, or other things that are game breaking because once the games are out there, they're out there. And uh, and it's also the reputation of Sega, right? Um, I think in a lot of ways they saw themselves as kind of a bit of a the the quality of like a Disney kind of franchise where everything they release should be, you know, a, a, not in a buggy game. And so, um, that plus just the people that put it together, the people that ran it. Um, and I've worked with some great QA people, but this is probably the best test department I ever worked with. And I'll tell you, there's one reason to also make all my friends who might be listening uh, from later QA groups uh, that I knew is that the difference is, again, you didn't have the opportunity to patch stuff. And so yeah. in, in, in more recent ones, when I was working like say Gazillion on Marvel Heroes or something, um, it was constantly being updated, you know, constantly updated. So uh, staff is small. What's the main problems? Let's fix the main problems Let the other ones kind of slide. So it's a different environment. And so you had to be a lot more mil military and organized in the old days because time was limited, resources were limited, and you had to ship the game. And so um, we had day and night crew at, at its height. Wow. I forget. I think Mike Latham said it's something like 100 people or something. This is about right. Um, and uh, and we you so you'd walk in uh, if you're just a, a tester and not a lead or something you would walk in it would show what your game assignment is uh, which was either exciting or heartbreaking um, you know if you oh that game's so cool I can't wait to play this or Little Mermaid Game Gear again oh, right yeah. um, uh, and so you would then get a test plan so the test plans uh, entail all the things that the game can do everything from going through menus to finishing the game in a different mode, to playing a character, to using a certain power. Um, and because there's so many of them, it would be dispersed amongst the, the testers of that day, right? So you might get, like, you're just gonna play level one over and over again and do these different things. And you have tick marks and things, and then you put in hours. And then at the end of the day, you'll go to um, the database and write bugs. And they had, of course, a format that they would use. And it was pretty disciplined, uh, you know, frequency, where, um, what it should do, all that kind of stuff. It would be redlined. We had a guy that would do redlines and, and make sure the grammar was good so the, the developers could read it. Uh, the leads would come in and ask questions if they don't get it. They also might duplicate, say, oh, you know, um, Bill Person found this one already, so we're going to duplicate that, right? Um, and then uh, then you would go through the cycles and you get new versions from the developer and you would you would verify the fixes are made, all that stuff. And, uh, and so you would go through that a lot of crunch time. The great thing was everybody's hourly and a lot of these guys just did nothing but kind of hang out and play video games. So they're like, cool, I'll just, I'll stay, I'll stay for the weekend, right? 
Um, and uh, and another great memory of Sega is a uh, Sega test was that uh, every Friday uh, during the season, uh, Seinfeld would be ran at the beginning. Yep. So you sit yep. down for about 30 minutes and it was just great because that was when, you know, the, the show was at its top and you're hanging out with all your friends or make, you know, doing video game stuff. It was just great, you know? Um, and, uh, and so Sega test is also really interesting. I had a diverse amount of people that would be in there because these were a lot more like the stereotyped ones, the guys that would basically smoke pot and come and do and test video games, right? Not all of them, right? Yeah, I yeah, didn't, yeah. but, but <laughs> that there's a lot of different types of people that come in, but then you have people that are uh, going to onto a big college later or whatever, people that have aspirations of being an engineer. So you had a mix of people. Yeah. So we have people that um, went on to be CEOs of their own company, people that stay in the video game industry like me for many, many years, uh, people that did a lot of things and just went on to do cool things. Um, people that just went in totally different directions and did different stuff. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, we've had, because it's such a big group of people, it's like a microcosm of of humanity. And so we had some great things and some sad things too, right? Like we had uh, a friend of several of us, and mine included. Um, he was unfortunately murdered. Um, I think it may have been drug related, uh, but th that was, that was heartbreaking because I had seen him like, you know, the week before, right? Yeah. Um, we've had, uh, but then we've all had people got married there, but then also divorced while they're also still working together. <laughs> so uh, lots of different things, um, but I'm friends with a lot of them. Um, and I cannot say enough good things about the Sega testers. Um, yeah. They, they're just really, they were a good group. So there's a lot to it. And uh, I'm glad I did that first because I understood that part of it. Because as a producer, you need to understand that. We've had um, James Purplehampton on the show before. He he was a tester for LucasArts, mm -hmm. and he went on to make um, Alien vs. Predator on the Jaguar. You know, a very good game on the Jaguar. And he, yes. he, he did tell me, he said literally that the testing in a previous company really made a massive difference for his future career making video games. And, um, you know, it sounds, Eric, it sounds like you echo that as well. And, you know, testers, they, they play a really important role, don't they? Let's be honest. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a, a thing I wanted to say, was that because I've touched a lot of product and because I was the lead on certain things is why I got opportunity to talk to you, right? Uh, but people that like maybe a really good artist or a really good junior engineer or a great uh, test team that worked on a game, they all made a difference. It's, it's my job, I would just be a guy with ideas is all it would be if I didn't have all those other people that I worked with, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, they're all important. Testers important, and it does make a difference. Uh, before I forget, because yeah. I would kill myself. Uh, so, you know, you talked to Mike Latham about yes. the, uh, the um, I don't know if you, if he told you what the webs of the YouTube channel was, but Hermanos de Midgar, it's a five hour long biography about him. Incredible, yeah, I've seen parts of it. Yeah, so he did that. He discovered it, right? He's like, oh my god, right? Uh, so um, this guy, his name's Oscar Gonzalez. He actually has four names, uh, being Spanish, uh, but um, he has done this great work. And then because I commented and started talking to him, he's also doing a biography on my work. And so um, I'm obviously super flattered. The, one of the biggest things about this to me yeah. is that my daughter especially my youngest one is two. My oldest one's 19, she'll still want to see it. But that uh, when they get older, they can see this. Here's my dad, you know, we've been talking, talking about all the way back from, because 
this guy, um, Oscar, I mean, he does so much research and he goes all the way back to literally when you were born. And so um, that's why Mike's is five hours long. And so I just wanted to give him a, a, a plug on your show. Hermanos yep. de Midgar is the name of the YouTube channel. Now, it is in Spanish. So definitely, if you have any Spanish-speaking listeners, they should definitely see these. But uh, it's also captioned in English, as you know, because you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just want to make sure to plug that before I forget. Now, I did kind of lose track of what we were just talking about. Um, so maybe you can remind me. Well, we were just talking about the importance of testing, really. And um, yeah. what, what, so really run through some really quick games you, you tested. Was it Sonic Spinball? Were you actually producing that game? or? Yeah, quite... so, yep. Yeah, so I know that list of, of games, right? So um, I'll need to go in at some point and uh, update Moby Games and IMDb because yeah. it's, it's, it's really like, some of them are wrong, or, or I just got to right. credit. Somebody, right. somebody just put me in there. Um, but I did a lot more. Uh, I've actually, well, this is actually a question you have later, so we'll talk about that later. But um, speaking specifically on Sonic Pinball, I do believe I was a system producer on it. Um, and that just means I was helping the producer on various aspects of getting the game through QA and all that stuff. Now, this is a, a main thing I want to say about the roles of producers at Sega uh, working on a Japanese product. Um, we, for the most part, not a whole lot of credit we should be taking for it because um, we just made sure that the game was localized properly, right. that the content didn't have something strangely offensive, um, and then made sure that it went through QA because there's always bugs with the US system or something maybe that Japan didn't find. Um, working with marketing um, and working on getting a test plan with the testers, all those things. There are some games that I touched on more. We can talk about... Um, uh, Blazing Heroes, right? Yeah, Lair. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but so far as most of the Japanese games I worked on, I do have some stories about some of them. But most of them, I basically just took it and helped ship it. It was exciting right. to be the producer on it because, like, you know, it's like, wow, I'm in charge of this thing going to market in the U.S., right? Um, uh, and they were amazing games and also taught me a lot as a producer and a later designer. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, so, so yes, now Sonic Pinball, I believe you had a question about Sonic Pinball too, right? I think we've got a, uh, yeah, social media question at the end. We, we can okay. at the end if you want, yeah? Okay, sure. Um, you mentioned before off air, um, or at least you've met some pretty big celebrities, some big names, and Michael Latham told a great story about my, meeting Michael Jackson. And Mac, Maxine, or credit to him, he, he gave some great stories about meeting uh, Jack, uh, Joe Frazier and some other boxes. Yeah. It sounds like an amazing place. You, you were at Sega for a good number of years, and... I would love to hear some stories about maybe Michael Jackson, I think MC Hammer, anyone maybe else yep. you've kind of met. I'd, I know I'd, it's, it's arguably my favorite part of the podcast when I hear about these amazing names. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, um, I, I'm sure that I'm going to leave some stuff out in our, our cast here. So sometimes when things come to mind, I want to bring it up. Yeah. And so um, once I, once things are really going, once I understood where I was, what I could be doing or was doing, um, it was an amazing magical time because this is where I think I could relate the most to a lot of your listeners, where it's like, wow, it'd be so cool to work at Sega. Well, unlike Mike Latham, was very seasoned. He was a, a, an accomplished, smart, technical producer, business guy. Like he knew all this stuff by the time he started working at Sega. So he was, I'm sure he loved working at Sega. But for me, I was like, I was like Ant-Man joining the Avengers, right? I was like, Wow, look at all these heroes around me. This is so cool, right? And so it was exciting and magical. And just um, going to uh, my f- f- favorite memories I had was going to our all hands meeting. Um, 
and it would be uh, a big ballroom in a nearby hotel, uh, which I got married at later, 20 years later, which is kind of funny. Uh, but uh, but that he would show, here's how we're doing against Nintendo. Back then is actually when we were actually taking uh, the share of the revenue over uh, Nintendo of America. We actually were winning, which it was fairly short-lived, but a big deal. But then he would show, it was Tom Kalinske, right? Awesome guy. Uh, he would show all the Sega commercials uh, before they even came out. And, you know, with the Sega scream, and I mean, oh, we just loved it. It's like, you know, we're, we felt like we're winning. We're part of this great team. Uh, oh, I worked on that game that this commercial he just showed me, you know, um, so it was great. Now, to go back, because I just told you I did a tangent, so I don't forget, to go back to the celebrities. So um, the funny thing was, I didn't actually get to see anybody, but I have two great stories. Yeah. So the first was Michael Jackson. So he came in during the day shift. And like I said, there's day and night shift, right? And at this time, I was working the night shift. And, um, oh, hmm. so it's it's one or the other. It may have been I was in a day shift and it just ended. And it, But either way, my buddy, again, Harry and, and I, uh, they already said, like, nobody can do anything but act normal, right? And so, and additionally, if you're not supposed to be there, you can't be there, right? And so we knew he was coming. And so we parked right in front of the entrance to Sega. It was at this time just one building, right in front of the entrance. Like he backed his car up so we would be like 20 feet from the door. Like we would see him. We would make sure to see him, right? Yeah, yeah. So we sat there for I don't know how long waiting for him. And then a little while later, we saw somebody drive up and then we say, hey, is Michael Jackson still there? I said, oh, no, he left like an hour ago through the side oh. exit. So being a celebrity that's what they do right so he snuck out the side so it was kind of funny that we, we had waited so much time and he just went right out the side door um now the the funnier one is mc hammer so um he came over and he's a big sports guy i don't know if you know that and uh, uh yeah so he um he he wanted to play joe montana football uh with our best qa guy um it's kind of keith and he was really good. Keith was really good at the game. And um, I wasn't there because I didn't get to meet him, but I had heard, uh, this is like, again, I think it was another part of the building or something like that, right? But he beat, uh, beat him like 49 to three or something. He just destroyed him. Uh, it was so funny that, that MC Hammer is the one that won. MC Hammer just comes in, he's like, never played the game, understands football. He's played football video games before and he just yeah. destroyed him and left. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Now, okay. so. I take it back. It's been 25 years. I did see him leaving in his really uh, awesome. I, I forget what kind of sports car it was. Now it doesn't. I can't remember. It was. It was. It was like a. I want to say it's a DeLorean because there actually weren't great cars, but it was something fancy like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, and uh, so I remember him driving off um, with his big, huge bodyguard who could barely fit in the car. Um, so that's smart. So I have more. I can tell you later. Uh, I met a lot of people when I was Electronic Arts, but that goes into the post Sega. But we could talk about that at, at some point in the podcast if you'd like. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, those are the two. Those are two celebrity stories. Um, because I'm the boots on the ground guy, I didn't get to meet Joe Montana when he was talking about the football, like which I would have loved. He's he's my favorite athlete, you know, for a long time, um, and I would have loved to have seen him. But it's okay, you know. Who do you support then? Are you a big American football fan then? Oh yes, oh yes. So. Um, you know, grew up in the Bay Area, so I was a 49ers fan. And uh, just around the time when I was really starting to understand the game, really getting into it, you know, because keep in mind, I was playing D&D &D and video games 
usually not also an intense sports fan, usually. And so, um, but about the time we really started paying attention was when Joe Montana, who still had some legs in him, they let him go to Kansas City, the Kansas City Chiefs. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. Yes, and um, at that point, I was a big Joe Montana fan. And so, again, I don't know if I'm going to mention his name again, but my buddy Harry and I, we were both Joe Montana fans. So we said, that's it, we're Chiefs fans now. <laughs> and I have been to six Chiefs games. Uh, I've followed them all throughout the years. He only played for two seasons, right, Joe Montana. But I, for 20-some years, and they just finally won the Super Bowl earlier this year, right after me following them for 25 years, they finally won. Um, so, yeah, so I'm a big uh, Kansas City Chiefs fan and uh, love Joe Montana. And, of course, you know, things like boxing and, you know, MMA, stuff like that. Amazing. No, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so I've got here, I mean, you kind of mentioned a bit earlier that getting promoted quite early on. And you never really had, it sounds early on, especially when you first walked in, say, aspirations to, to hang around too long, but you, you were soon promoted to an assistant producer, became a producer on many, many titles, huge games. I mean, I've got here like Eternal Champions, which we'll talk about a bit more, got the Lion King, Virtual Fighter, Rise Star, Golden Axe, and you said here Moby Games is not completely up to date, so please, if, if, if I've forgotten some other massive titles, feel free to chip in, Eric. Well, um, yeah, well, so, so I can tell you this, right? So I didn't go through and, and analyze. I think um, there's probably about five or so games from Sega that maybe aren't on that list, but um, but most but those for the most part are ones that again I helped shepherd out the door right now. Um, the but I do have stories on several and I can talk about several. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear some stories yeah. about the games. Yeah. And and I think a lot of I assume a lot of your viewers would too. People had played the games back then or whatever. So um, so one of them is a very interesting one. And I, uh, this is going to be jumping ahead a little bit. Um, was I was working on a game, uh, an RPG from Japan. And uh, it was a cool little game. It was uh, it was it was a Saturn game. Uh, I don't know if it's the first Saturn RPG with it was 3D because I like 3D kind of textured kind of characters and stuff. Um, but uh, we got the translations for it, and it was I don't know I don't know who translated, but it was garbage, right? And so I had the opportunity. Excuse me, I had the opportunity to um, rewrite. Uh, the story in a way to be concise, hopefully a little clever, um, even change the story a little bit uh, to make it be, make it more interesting. And how that worked was, first off, I just had the okay because I showed. It may have been Micah showed it to us. I said, "This is this is we can't ship like this is horrible." And um, rather than ask somebody else to redo it, because I was also playing the game, so I understood the flow of the story and the characters involved and all that stuff. So um, I wrote and I was sent off the stuff to Sega of Japan and they were really cool about putting the stuff in and I was getting it it was looking good I was feeling really good about the quality of that part I was working really hard at it because it was the first time I've professionally written to that degree and so um, we got about maybe three quarters of the way through and this is about the time that I'm assuming that Sega was getting their numbers in for Saturn and seeing how they were doing in relation to yeah. Sony and all that. And I think that the relationship between SOJ and SOA at that time, the power level was different. So um, because SOA was doing so well for so long, Sega Japan was very accommodating for a long time. Budget, green lighting games, all that kind of stuff. Like they were, they were very amenable to stuff. And, uh, and I will always say good things about them, by the way. But um, it was obvious that there was a shift 
because I was three quarters away done and the producer in Japan that was helping process all this translation, he said, yeah, we, uh, our, uh, our exec producer said, we're not doing that anymore. Oh. And I said, we, we can't not do it. Uh, I said, we're, it's like I have partially written story, right? And uh, they said, no, they can't. And so I don't remember if I went to Mike and Mike talked to them or I don't know, whatever it was, there was no opportunity to get it in. And so what happened was um, that uh, the reviews came out. And I, I warned them, by the way. The reviews came out, and I did send you that one review, that one snippet, right? And so in that in the snippet, it said, uh, you know, well-directed, um, you know, nice flow, pleasant, good game. But then it starts to fall apart at the end and gets really confusing and muddled. As exactly what, and they're speaking specifically to the story and the script, right? Because um, yeah. the gameplay was the gameplay, which was fine. It was a good game. But I was like, they literally caused bad reviews by not, a which would not have taken that much more effort, you know? But I think it was a thing like, we're not helping them anymore because they failed us, right? Um, and another story on that game, which is interesting. So um, I forget the original, original name, but it was a strange name that wouldn't, this is something a lot of, uh, Sega of America producers can take credit for, which is helping to rename games, working with marketing to rename games to be something that makes sense. Sometimes they still don't make sense, but um, so I remember as as producer, I went through, I went to QA and we did like just come up with names and we had a huge name list and we ended up coming out with uh, Realms of Mystaria or is it, yeah, Mystaria, I think. Yes. And so, um, Sounded good to us. Sounded very role-playing game-ish and, and, you know, Realms of and a fancy name. We released it. We weren't that long out there. But then suddenly found out we got sued by TSR, oh. the owners of Dungeons & Dragons, because Mistara is uh, a setting that they had released not too long before that. So what happened was either my subliminal influence because I played D&D, &D, but I didn't yeah. use that realm, so I didn't pay attention. It may have come in, and I, you know, it was one of the things I offered, or maybe a QA person or somebody had that, but it sounded good. So we had to um, pull it off the shelves and rename it. Um, and I was actually quizzed by the lawyers well, about no, how really. we came up with the name. And it, it was very intimidating because, you know, I was it was still fairly early on in my career. And, uh, and I felt like if I say the wrong thing, I might get fired. Like, you're the guy that screwed up. Luckily, I was able to tell them. I came out. I said, "Hey, guys, give me a list of names." We put it through legal, right? You guys, and legal approved it. And uh, but I guess Mastaria and Mastara, and it was yeah. uh, for whatever reason legal didn't catch it. Uh, so we renamed it Blazing Heroes, which is what most people know it as because there's yes. fewer realms of Mastaria that are out there. So yeah, so that's that story. Um, and obviously, so I had a lot of things going on, good and bad, with that. Um, I've got another to ask, Eric, sorry do you, do you own those two copies yourself do you own both versions with it? you know i might so I've, I've moved so many times i think we should continue just conversing in general and i'll see if i can dig up some old stuff but uh, i've moved so many times that a lot of those things aren't around anymore which sucks i mean it's you always regret stuff like that right yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh I, but i might still have it <laughs> but the truth is if not you could probably buy it online so probably somebody has it but um anyway so another story was um, working on a Virtual Fighter 2 for the Genesis. That's so, amazing. Um, That's the fact yeah. they to get that on the Mega Drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I was really impressed. I mean, the game played completely solid because the reality is 
Virtual Fighter really, in a lot of ways, plays like a 2D game. At least it, it continues to kind of shift the players within within a you know a step or two. Um, I'm not saying it's a 2D game, but it, it worked um, for what it needs to do. And so the game played uh, a little bit like a hybrid 2D 3D game, but it's pretty much identical to the players. Now, the reason I bring this up because again, I didn't do anything on this game. I was like, I didn't say, you know, no, add a character or something, right? But um, what we did do, because there's no voice, when it was the end of a match and you beat, like the mat, the, the endings were really generic. They're like, you should try and be stronger next time or just something, because yeah. they were just, whatever it was that Japan gave us, it was just like things to say. So um, this is just a fun story. I don't think it made the game better, but um, being in QA for so many years and playing fighting games with people, we had so many obnoxious call-outs we would give to each other when we would win, right? Like, for example, we'd say stuff like, you know, we, we, you'd beat somebody after some heated battle in Street Fighter, and you'd say, you know, I'm asking myself a question right now. Where's the challenge, right? <laughs> so we, so we, we would always, we would always, we had so many of those, right? And so we basically yeah. made a collection of those, and we tried to match them the best with the characters that would have to say those kind of things. And so a lot of our old jokes, and I, I confirmed this by going on YouTube the other night, I said, yeah, there it is. Um, you know, I forget which character is saying some of the stuff that we put as inside jokes. So that was kind of funny. Um, again, not something made the game, oh, kind of made the game better. It's kind of oh, yeah, cute, cheeky, right? That's good fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And um, I don't think so far, sake of Japan games, uh, I mean, I have like little things like uh, Rice Star and Estal uh, for Saturn later. Um, but again, I didn't do anything for those, but those were pretty memorable projects to work on just because of the games that they were, right? Uh, I, I guess I guess you should keep talking that. I could tell you about Estal and um, uh, Rystar, right? Well, so, yeah, definitely, please, yeah. Yeah, so for Rystar, um, what was interesting with that was um, I didn't know it when I first got it, but they, you know, because a lot of times you just get assigned. Sometimes you get to pick, but usually you get assigned the games. And I thought, oh, this is the guys that did Sonic. I was like, whoa, this is the Sonic guys? And as soon as I connected, like, oh, I could see, you know, because it was a very tightly well-crafted role-design game, right? Characters interesting, the environment, this music, everything was just on point. Um, obviously slower and purposely so than, um, you know, Sonic. But uh, the problem with that game was something happened to Eternal Champion Sega CD, which is that it came out late. Um, life, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 as I recall, they tried to release the game to breathe a little more life into the Genesis before it was kaput completely, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a good game. It probably sold fairly well, uh, but it never could get that momentum because the game was already, people already like looking forward to the next system, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, what, was about the, what else about that? Um, I think that's basically it, but to me, it's just interesting reflecting upon that. Oh, was that uh, later on, I realized, oh, you know, because Donkey Kong with the SNES, they are, yeah, yeah, uh, they uh, they tried to kind of do that with the uh, 3D rendered kind of look on the, you know, um, I think they were trying to do something similar. And so the strategy was good. It was just unfortunate, my, my point about all that with that game, it's unfortunate it didn't come out like a year later, a year earlier, yeah. because I think it would have been, been more popular. But I mean, it's out there and people played it and people who could hear about it could, probably find and play. And so it's not like it can't be played now, right? Um, and then 
As Stahl, I, the only reason I would mention that game is, uh, do you remember this game at all, by the way? Estal? Estal? No, I don't, don't recall it, I'm afraid, Eric. Sorry. Okay, so um, you're, you kind of guys can look it up later. But it was a Saturn game. Uh, funny thing was, it was a, kind of similar to Rystar in a way, in that it had a, a character who was kind of similarly visually envisioned, and it had like kind of single move kind of things. Um, but it was a more pleasant, relaxing um, platformer. Uh, but it was a really pleasant little game. And the reason I mentioned this was, this is like small things, but um, the voiceover person who came in to do all the voiceover for the US side, um, there was this really talented lady and I was helping to direct it. And I thought she did a great job and I was you know, giving her some cues and giving her feedback and it's great. So when we're done and I was really happy with it, uh, I heard from the sound engineer, the guy who was in charge of like yeah, yeah. The, of the music team, sound and stuff. He said, yeah, I said, she she was really upset. She thought you didn't like her stuff. I was like, what? what? So yeah, it's kind of a weird thing that I guess, uh, who knows what I said, uh, but this is, this was a good lesson for me to always be hypersensitive to the things I say so that they're read the right way by people because you want to make sure that they understand when you, especially when they're doing something right, right? Um, so that's an interesting kind of tidbit for you. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and, and the sound stayed in the game, is that right? They, they weren't removed or anything? Oh, no. Yeah, all, all her all her voiceover stuff is in there. It was all good. It's, it, oh. it was good. That is odd. Um, let's talk a bit more about um, Eternal Champions, if that's all right. Um, of course. Uh, Michael has mentioned you a couple of times and he said that you built a very good, you know, he, he considers you a really good friend. I think he even mentioned at one point, again, I don't want to bring up some bad memories, but he said that you had a little, not falling out, but you didn't quite see eye to eye at a certain period. But there's very strong mutual respect there. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Eric, but you can, sure. you can fill it in. But he, he, looks, he really saw something in you, he said, and he was really proud of what you've done and what you've achieved. And he, he said, um, Eternal Champions, I think he's more talking about the, the, the sort of, the mega cd version but feel free to correct me that wouldn't be the game without you is that how how would you reflect on eternal champions when did you get your teeth into that yeah. game what was your kind of relationship with michael Latham, if you yeah. don't mind well so i can talk to a lot of ad nauseum so first off i think it's super important that when everybody listening to me know i think mike Latham is an amazing human being let alone all the stuff he's done in video games um he gave me an opportunity he supported me and he uh, has just done nothing but fair-minded kind of stuff. Any issues we had, especially in retrospect, as a 53-year-old man, was just nothing. It was it's not even worthy of talking about. Um, I have great memories of when I was there. Um, you know, he was he was Odin, and I was Thor, even though I didn't have blonde hair. And then our friend Bill Person, who I'm sure he's, he's mentioned to you, the producer, um, because he was a little more conniving. He was Loki, right? But um, uh, I mean, it was it was just great. Working for him was awesome. I mean, so I, I think I think one reason you might mention this is because a lot of successful people are very type A, and uh, and so sometimes that can be abrasive, right? But he was just very focused. He wanted good work. He wanted Sega to succeed. He cared tons about his projects he was working on, every single one. Obviously, Eternal was his baby. Um, so, I mean, working with him was great, and I learned a lot. Uh, he helped me, you know, with all these opportunities, and uh, and, and he once once he, he gave me opportunities to do stuff by myself, he just kind of let me do it. Um, so I want to get all that stuff aside. I have nothing but good things to say about him. Um, now, so far as Eternal, 
So uh, I feel like I was working on Eternal from 1993 until 1995. Straight. Cool. Straight. <laughs> because I was either working on the, or I was either working on the Genesis uh, game uh, with him, which is more short-lived because it was like, it's already in production, da, 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 get it out. But that was really intense. And that was the part I talked about earlier when I went in with Harry Chavez. And um, then after, th after that was done, he had already gotten the green light for the Sega CD version, right? And this is actually the one that he was actually alluding to because uh, I, helped, I helped game balance but the game would have been pretty similar, I think, without me. I didn't, I didn't revamp the fighting system and do anything. Whereas the Sega CD version, um, which is when he sent me on site uh, with a couple QA guys that were kind of working with me, for me, uh, helping me out. And, um, and that was where I was able to redesign the combat system. I was able to come up with uh, entire movesets for some of the new characters, um, special moves for many of the characters because we added of course special moves to them um, as well as criteria for um, how do you get a Senna kill for example which which uh, or how do you could do a vendetta getting getting stuns all those kind of um, those nuanced kind of things and so um, so working on that eternal CD was probably my single best memory in the industry was working on the game because at that time, um, the team I worked with at Sega Interactive were great. They were yeah. all awesome. Like they were good-natured, hardworking. Um, Rod Nakamoto uh, and his wife that were in charge there, they were great. It was just a super cool time to work. It was funny was I, I remember too, that was back when OG Simpson trial was going on. And I remember <laughs> we would we would have our breaks in the break room with the TV on and watch the OG Simpson. And we worked because we worked seven days a week five days a week we'd be watching the trial and then going back and doing our work but um but uh yeah i mean just working on the game and then uh it got better and better and better and this is a game that actually was released the quality i think that it could have been um and it was late i don't remember how late but uh but it was it was a good quality game now i don't know if mike told you or if you've done research on it but it was on like seven or eight video game magazine covers um, and the reviews all across the board were like eight and above on all of them. Um, because we, you know, I'm proud of that product. I think we did good. It was like the, um, if you take these amazing characters that he built and the world that he built, integrating this, uh, all the animations, uh, not the animations, sorry, all the cinematics and things that are tied into the story and the characters. Um, I, I don't know if Mike also told you, but almost all of the disc was filled up with content. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Between all the characters, the hidden characters, the moves, all the music, all the cine kills, all the uh, all elaborated animated kills, like it almost took the entire desk, which is definitely a bragging point because that's hard to do. Um, but uh, so, so a, a nice story for you was that because I wasn't there on site nonstop for a year and a half or whatever, I was back a lot uh, in um, Redwood City and I would have Sega testers come over for big uh, barbecue and uh, troll champions and so we would all the guys and some guys test our games some didn't but I probably have like 20 plus people come over from Sega test I used to work with we'd all have barbecue we just play tournaments so I don't know if you remember right there's all those tournaments in the Sega CD version are you familiar uh, with that or not 
I I put my hands up. I used to own the uh, Mega Drive version. I've never actually ah. played the Mega CD version. Tree. I put my hands. Up. I'm sorry, Eric. Uh, That's fine. I've That's heard, fine. I've heard it is a definitive version, though. I've heard many yeah. many good things about it. Yeah, uh, and, and this is totally fine. And actually, you're part of that story of why it's a shame about the game because the game came out when the system was already. I was already dead. It was like one of the last games that I think Sega set uh, released themselves. And uh, so I don't the the cells were nowhere near what they needed to be. The reviews were amazing, but that's why people like Axios Oscar uh, Gonzalez guy told you about why he did he did it specifically because he loved Eternal Champions so much and the Sega TDD version. But um, but it was I was really proud of that game and and you know the opportunity to do what I did and the um, the ability to sh not ship the game too early, which is so common. So many games and you've played them, you know. Uh, oh, if only this game seems like it's not complete. Like, oh, you know, um, a lot of times that's just the case. Like the games just get released too early because you have to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I, I think. And then you also did some of the press tour stuff for that as well, which is a lot of fun. Um, got to go all over the U.S. with our PR team and talk the game up. Because as Mike told you, he's for a guy who's so outgoing and uh, kick ass, he doesn't really like to do a lot of press stuff. And so I became the guy. Um, and so um, it was fun because I got to go to Minnesota and New York and da, 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 all over. And then also sometimes be interviewed for different video game magazines. Like, wow, I'm in the Game Informer. That's so cool, right? Nice. Like you're still, I was still young in my industry, but it's exciting to be in there, right? Yeah. It's exciting to be in the magazine. So yeah, so that's that's Eternal in a nutshell, but um, it was it was amazing. It was a really good time. I mean, would you do you have a favorite character, uh, Eternal Champion fighter? And also, I'm going to annoy you now. Finish your movie. It's not called a finish your movie, is it? It's called a. Um, you have to put, well, so correct. there's a few different names. There's uh, sudden deaths. There's yeah. vendettas. There's cena kills. And now it's I, I forget. There's two different versions for the background kills. Uh, what yeah, is yeah. the other one? Not the sudden death. See, it's it's been a long time. But um, so I could tell you on all those. So um, I think my favorite character so far as. Uh, effective because he had the best moveset um, was probably Ramsey's mm. um, because I I was able to design both his regular moveset and his special moveset and so I knew you know someone jumps they do this if they're this distance you do that if they're if you're low on health uh, before the round's over you do this all these different kind of tactics as well as just the combos felt pretty smooth um, so I liked him and then so far, the thing is, I'll tell you, I have I have a soft spot for all of them. I mean, even uh, I, and since you didn't play the um, the Sega CD version, but even the uh, um, Yappy the dog, the little hidden uh, little you know yeah. little pop that you could fight as. But all of those were fun in different ways. Um, but Chin Wo was one I liked because he did monkey style kung fu, mm -hmm. and he had a cool um, hoop that he would use as a weapon, and being able to design out those moves as well as design of the special moves um, was just a, a joy. And so he's probably my single favorite, but man, I mean, they're all cool. So far as uh, background kills, so the Cine kills, um, do you, you, I know you didn't play it, but are you familiar with what a Cine kill is? If no, remind, remind me of it, please, yeah. Totally fine, totally fine. And I'm not offended, by the way. Again, you're exactly the example of why the game didn't do well. Like you're already moving on to stuff when that came out. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, yeah, yeah. So um, the Cine kills, where basically um, the uh, dark champion uh, would come in and he would grab the loser of the fight 
and pull them into this cinematic, like a Freddy Krueger kind of wow. killing uh, cinema, cinematic, right? And so um, you would have, for example, um, Shadow would get killed by multiple throwing stars, right? Like, like they just come out flying, she'd kill whatever. But um, my favorite was uh, Trident. Of course, you remember him. Um, he appears in this, he's in this tower with the Dark Champion. They always start in the same place. Like, it's the Dark Champion. They're like, what's going on? And uh, he puts his hand out and he turns Triton into a fish. And, 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 and the camera zooms and you see the fish kind of flopping around. And the eyeball is like frantically looking around. And then you see the foot of the Dark Champion. He goes, and it, oh, goes to no. black, it goes to black and you're a squish, right? Wow. So that was one. And then a, a vendetta. So the vendettas are basically, uh, you know, like the Mortal Kombat equivalent of fatalities, right? So these yeah, were yeah. added also. And uh, there, there's one uh, with um, uh, Larson. And uh, he, it's very simple, but it was just brutal. So he, he, he grabs the opponent by their lapel. And he pulls out one of his uh, sides and he stabs him in the stomach again and again and again. And at first, the the character's screaming on the first few stabs, and you see the blood gushing out, and then it stops screaming, and he just keeps stabbing. He just wow. keeps seeing the splurt. He must have stabbed like probably like 15 times before it stops. It's so over the top. It's like, <laughs> it was just bad. And then um, two other uh, honorable mentions uh, was that um, the midnight background, and I don't remember if this was, I don't know if this was in the Sega CD version. I say this, sorry, the Genesis version was, it was where you fall through a trap door and you go through and there's these blades and they kind of cut you as you go down the pit. Ooh, I remember so, so. so you and your uh, watchers can do themselves a favor and just look up all the kills for Tone Champions because there's several videos out there. Just yeah. It's back to back. And so this one, it's probably about two minutes long, I'm guessing. And you fall through this pit, and there's these blades and these saws and things that you like this. And your character goes through, and he, he screams. And he's like, he's your character at that point, he's just like um, a husk with like his skin's all off, and he's like kind of like this. And he goes through another set, and then he's just like, um, like a, maybe like a head and an arm or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes through another set, and he's just like just a skull. And the skull falls for a while until it hits the bottom of the pit and explodes. Have you seen this one now? Yeah, I think I've seen that one. Okay. It, I've definitely okay. seen it on YouTube. Yeah, it's great. It's so yeah. amazing. And and the last one is um, the it's a simple one, but again, it's just so obnoxious. Was the shark kill in Riptide's background, which Riptide was a uh, Sega CD. You've seen that one with the shark. So, um, but they're fine. Going back, by the way, to when we would play those um, have those barbecue tournaments with the testers. There's also a mode in the tournament where you get extra points for doing kills. So you would just try and win a match. If you can actually maneuver a guy and knock him off the boat and have the shark eat him, you get extra points. Oh, and man. so they'd be watching, and you'd be getting upper hand, and everybody, they've all tested the game, they know, and they'll start going, shark, 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 shark. And then you knock him over, boom, everybody yeah. cheers, and the loser's got to sit there for like 20 seconds and watch the shark eat him. Um, so it's there's no game like it so far as those moments, you know? I think I said to Michael, it's it's such a great game. Um, I can't really speak too much about the Mega CD version, but it should have had should have been released in the arcades. It sh it should have competed against Mortal Kombat and even Street Fighter in the arcades. It was good yeah. enough. I yeah. personally think it's good enough. I so I would agree. And you know, I think another thing that I was proud of of that game, and this is for everybody. And I don't want to say when I say I'm proud of it, it's not like I did it, everybody, but that um, very difficult to make a good fighting game from scratch. 
because if you look at Street Fighter, Virtual Fighter, Mortal Kombat, all these things came from arcade roots with big development teams, lots of times iteration. They, they, they developed the game over many years, whereas we had one shot. We had a, a, a finite amount of time, finite amount of people, and so it was a good game. And then, again, the characters in the world were very interesting, right? And so there's that interest about, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Mike's talked to you about, you know, the, the third version that he wanted to do that yeah. probably got nixed because Sega of Japan didn't want competition with Virtual Fighter, which, again, they're two different games. So, but, um, but yeah, and the thing is, though, it's, it's the year of the retro or it's the decade of the retro games. It's like if, if Mike ever wanted to kind of, you know, dust off his producer cap and put it back on, I mean, Kickstarter or something, I mean, for sure, it could completely be done again. And, and if not that game, because Sega owns it, an homage to it, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, Streets of Rage 4 came out, and that was a homage to the classic series. Yeah. I, and there's, honestly, when, when we posted our first ever text interview with Michael many years ago now, uh, and it was largely about Eternal Champions, it, loads of people were very interested. It's one of those games that a lot of people, I think, respect, and it doesn't always get the praise it deserves. It's kind of under the radar a little bit for Sega titles, personally. Um, yeah. And actually, I, 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 we've got a few social media questions at the end of the interview, Eric, but I'll sort of jump ahead here. Charlie Yu, who's a sort of a really good listener, kind of a member of Arcade Attack, actually, he asks, would you ever like to see a, a new Eternal Champions game or even a HD remake of the originals? What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, so I guess a good segue from the last conversation I just had, which is probably why you brought it up. Um, so because retro is back, so I think, and even I, I know that Mike was planning to do a 3D game for the Eternal Champions 3, but it was almost a must back then. Everything was going 3D. Yeah. If you didn't have a 3D game, you were like behind the times. And uh, now people appreciate the nuances and the differences of games that are 2D fighters. And there's actually 2D fighters have been coming out in the last you know 15 years probably, slowly trickling through the different systems. Um, so I would I would imagine as kind of a visual set, it would be still 2D, but it would be um, everything upgraded because of the technology we have. Yeah. Um, if we have license, just upgrade the characters, give them new, new outfits or things make them different. But I think visually, it could just be a better looking game of that. Yeah. And then, um, but then there's so many ways you can elaborate that, right? So you could have, um, because so much of Mike's creation was the stories and the characters, right? Yeah, and yeah. so you could take the story aspect and maybe do something like a choose or an adventure kind of thing with the characters talking and that could lead into different combats. Uh, you know, like a lot of the Mortal Kombat games have done, but we could actually do it with choosing a path because mm -hmm. ultimately they just, they just end up with fights anyway. So, I mean, you could you can manage that. Um, you could do things like you could unlock moves and come back and play through it again. You could you could have versions of it where it could play. So there was um, obviously experts in turn as we would have liked, right? Um, I have familiar with that game at all. But um, taking that, have portions of the game that could be like a, Streets of Rage, Double Dragon kind of game, maybe even play with another person. The moveset, because it's 2D, you could probably pull off combos and do special moves, yep. and that could be fun. That could be a portion of the game. So there's a lot you could do. Uh, but is the the answer to that question, though, is yeah, for sure. Like, I think um, it, realistically, it'd have to be an homage, because I don't think Sega would ever part with it. Um, I just think they're oh, too... Yeah. Like, why would they? Like, like you're going to give us how much money? No. Like, they, they would want so much money. But again, like, if... 
Mike was able to do it again. He could just create all new characters. I mean, after being in the industry for so long, yeah, when people take your ideas, that sucks, but it's not like you have, you're out of ideas, right? Make something yeah. new. No, definitely. I, I would love to see it personally. Um, right, I want to talk about SegaSoft now. And I, Eric, I put my hands up again. It's one of those things that I don't know too much about. It's one of those things that I actually think we might cover in a future podcast. Just talk about SegaSoft because it's an unbelievable. It's an unbelievable thing. And I, I honestly, I'm quite a. Uh, I'm not an expert at all, but it's it's. I'd love to know. Could you briefly explain what it's all about and how it was conceived? And were you involved in the whole? I know you're involved in the game in SegaSoft, but what what what's your views and your role on that particular project? Yeah, well, so I was, I don't know at what point I was a full producer. I think it was like right before SegaSoft became. Uh, so uh, here's some things that I've surmised uh, over the time, some things that I knew, but again, because I wasn't the guy in, in a lot of those bigger meetings. Right. Okay. Um, I was the guy in the meetings about the games we're going to work on as opposed to the strategy or why we're doing the entire endeavor, right? But I here's my assumptions, right, is that, Again, Sega Saturn, for as cool as it was, and it had some really cool games, was just not competing well with Sony. And I think that there probably would have been a sizable amount of layoffs at Sega because of that. And so um, I think there was uh, an opportunity they saw as, well, we can have we have all this production staff that have made a lot of Sega games that they believed in. And so they basically create a startup because it was a funded startup company. Right, but it was tied to Sega by calling Sega Soft. Now we didn't have carte blanche on anything Sega. Everything would have to be kind of um, negotiated and stuff. And as I recall, we did pretty much nothing that was straight up Sega. Uh, I might be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, and so it was really more of like, in a way, think of it as games by people that made Sega games. Right now, the other thing was that more importantly was that they tried to take a different avenue. So because they continued Sega, right? Like some people went on to Sega proper and did Dreamcast and more yeah. Saturn games. Um, that we were focused on the, uh, the online kind of growth, which was people playing Quake, all those things. We want to become a hub where people come play our games, right? And that uh, then we would create a lot of PC games that would then be exclusive to our site, right? So yeah, yeah. We, also had, we also had a big interest in making online games that we could host. And so, um, so we did that. We had a this guy Curtis Soldano. I say this guy, a producer and a friend of mine. He uh, was in charge of a mod for Quake called the Bomb, which was unique to us, and we hosted it. And it was definitely the most popular thing we had on our um, on our online uh, hosting site. And then um, we had a variety of products that came out, though not all of them were online only. So we had. Um, actually, our biggest seller was uh, Cosmopolitan's Virtual Makeover. <laughs> okay, So Cindy Claiborne, she was up with us back then. Yeah. And uh, it was like what it sounds like. You take a photo and you like put hair on and stuff and people bought it up and there's many different versions of it and it did well. Yeah, that was yeah. just an opportunity. I think Michael said, yeah, he, he's a very popular program. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so those, there's those things. Then there were some games that were not online um, that were just opportunities. There was a game called Emperor of the Fading Suns that I worked on. Uh, this uh, fairly small, very dedicated, very smart group in Georgia that worked on the game. And uh, the game was maybe half done or three quarters done. And so the cost to help them finish it and publish it was reasonable. So we did that. 
that was not online. I mean, you could play versus, but it wasn't like hosted through like, you know, you don't need anything other than the other person. Um, uh, as an aside to that, by the way, uh, tell stories about stuff. So you've heard of the UFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, so for, I think, about five years, four years, I trained under Brian Johnston, who fought in the UFC several times. And so he was fighting in Georgia, and I needed to meet with the developers about the game in Georgia. So I doubled up. I went and I met them, and I actually took several of them to the UFC to watch it. And they were shocked because they'd never seen anything like this before in person. I think they were happy that they went. Um, but what's even more funny is because the this is like UFC 11, maybe. So it's a much smaller venue. And so they were actually in videos in the background watching. The, I'm not, not the background, but actually the, the camera's panning and you see them. So here's these developers really? working, by like going, oh, what's going on? Um, so it's kind of a funny, funny tid tidbit for that. that now, um, some of the stuff I'm just trying to give you some background anecdotes right and it's like yeah, maybe, they're, maybe they're not important to anybody so uh game wise so two important games uh that i worked on one of which was such a famous failure that it actually is famous and another one that was um a famous success but that as you're mentioning people don't really know about so i'll talk about the bad one first so yeah, please. <laughs> um there's a game called flesh feast actually so so let's start from the beginning it was not called flesh feast it was not called that so um, very short backstory on me. I love all things zombie. I've seen so many zombie movies. Um, obviously love the Resident Evil franchise, all that stuff. So there's a developers in Norway called InGames. And they were also partially subsidized by Norway. And they sent us a very simple animation of this 3D zombie crawling out of the ground and crawling and, and walking forward, right? It was pretty simple looking, but the potential was there. And it was a zombie game and I could potentially work on it. And so I was like, we should do a zombie game, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, this could be a longer story, so I'll make it a little shorter. But essentially, uh, what that grew out was a lot of discussions with the guys, of course, signing them on. One of the biggest problems that I think Segasoft had was we didn't have a lot of funds. I mean, making a game is expensive, right? And so I still remember it's only half a million dollars budget, which is not nearly enough for a super quality game um, because it was from scratch too. It wasn't like they had a game almost done. And so we had a limit and also they were new, the first, the first video game they've done. Right. And I, for my part, my failures were that I was split up on several games and my focus was here and there. And when I gave them design input, I didn't give them deep enough design input. And so the game became what it was. So the essential concept of the game uh, that I worked out with them was uh, think of it like the Dawn of the Dead movie where they're trapped in the mall, right? So that's going to be kind of like the marquee kind of level part of the game. But I want to do that over and over again in different settings. And so the basic story was there's this uh, organization, organization called NASAT, and they have uh, this big island that these weird things are happening on. And so you're sent there to find out I, don't, I think I'm a reporter or something. I don't remember, uh, which is funny because, of course, the um, the Dead Rising game that came, you know, years later. But um, so essentially, you would control yourself and other characters, and you would try and secure the area of zombies. Sometimes you just try and escape, but then you would 
you would basically start gathering a group. Some guys would die, some would live. You pick which guys you're going to use. You would acquire, you find weapons and things. That, you know, like if you if you go to the gun shop in the mall, you're going to find guns. Or if you go to the, um, you can get some fertilizer maybe in the uh, um, in the football kind of stadium, whatever, um, and and maybe make a bomb out of it. There's different things you could do, but it was way too scattered. And we tried to be both a real-time strategy where you could control your different guys and also light to get in. And so everything was kind of garbage. Um, because it didn't give enough design input, I think that it wasn't didn't have enough kind of like moments of excitement or like tension. Uh, it was just kind of like a sameish kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it has its charm. And there's actually a retro review of a guy who said, you know what, for all these problems, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and so it's a weird thing where it's almost like a bad movie Right, like yeah, yeah, so bad, so bad good. It. Yeah, 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 and so, um, and so with that, we did the Tommy Tellerico uh, stuff, right? So, um, I guess probably segue into that a little bit. So, Tommy Tellerico was, of course, with Electric Playground for a long time, and uh, I don't know if you've seen a show at all. I've seen bits, and we've had him on the show before. What a great guy! Uh, I know what oh. you're talking about. Yeah, very talented. I mean, he's brilliant, and he's uh, he was conversational. I mean, for a guy who's done so much, he definitely has an opinion of himself. But you know what? He has an opinion of you too, and it's a good one. He's a good guy, right? And so he, he was just—he's very like energetic and brilliant and just fun, and it was great. I loved him so much. And so we made two videos because he worked with SegaSoft, and um, and that. Uh, they would do these promos for different games we're doing, right? Yeah. So I was producer on both Flesh Feast, and we'll talk about later, Netfighter. Oh, so yeah. for Flesh Feast, um, he and I came up with skits. He does skits for most of them, if, you know, if you've seen them. So he does interviews, but he shines with skits. And I love this because both, and you can find these online. Um, I, I sent you those links, right? But yeah, they're, uh, they're, I think it's season, I want to say season two of Electric Playground, but whatever it is, um, it, it basically, the plush feast one, we're sitting around, it's dark, and we're eating from this bowl of mush. Oh. And, uh, and, and we're, it, but it's it's got like this weird kind of light to it, so you can't really see very well. And we're talking about the game, we're showing snippets of the game, and I'm telling them how awesome it's going to be, which is a lie. Um, and and so at the end of it, uh, by the way, at one point I pick a plastic hand out, and I'm sucking on the fingers, and, and you realize we're just going to be eating bodies. Um, and, uh, and then he says something like, uh, he goes, he goes, it sounds like a great game, Eric, and this is some great grub. He's all, what is it? And I said, funny, you should ask, right? And so then um, the I, I reach under his shirt, and I he starts screaming. I pull out, it looks like a bloody piece of body part, and I uh, put it in my mouth, and I tear it off, and then it turns to all bright lights. And so you can see I'm covered in blood, and this, like, what it was, is chicken. Raw chicken, by the way, oh. don't ever do it. We didn't get sick, but it was just stupid. Nonetheless, uh, and he falls back, and all the testers who were from SegaSoft came out of their cubes as zombies, like, Rrr. and so it was just such a fun bit. Like, I would do the game again just to be able to do that funny skit from years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I, again, and I, I want to go back on one thing. When I said his opinion of himself, what I meant was he's very confident in his accomplishments, and he should be. So I want to make sure that be very clear. I love the guy. So um, that was the, the, the whole thing of Flesh Feast. And I guess the other thing... I came up with the name for it. Um, it was a movie from the early 70s I had not seen, ah. but because it was so long ago and it was so minuscule that our legal team's like, yeah, we're not worried about it. You can call it Flesh Beast. Our, um, our marketing guy, Greg Shemango, 
he did a great job with this huge gross poster of like a chainsaw with body parts hanging off it. He sent these arms, uh, these bloody arms to all the um, reviewers ahead of time to get, get them hyped about the game. It was, it was a lot of fun in spite of the end result. Um, so that was Flesh Feast. The other one was Netfighter. Um, there's other minor ones, but those are the, the, the three that matter. So Netfighter uh, was one where it made a lot of sense. So uh, we had the online side, which is a very important part of our business. And um, we, Mike and I had done fighting games. We loved fighting games. Yeah. And so a conversation was had and we said, yeah, you know what? Let's try to do a fighting game on the internet. Now, 1997 or eight and 98, um, in 14.4 modems, it was just garbage. Like you could not, because of the fast twitch nature, much more different than something like Quake that has predictable kind of momentum and the reticules and things like you can kind of figure things out and it works. Fighting games are like, do you block, do you time this combo correctly, you know, all that stuff. So um, the, the general idea that I believe Mike came up with, which was that uh, we just need to find ways to do predictive behavior for the AI to take over when the packets aren't being sent properly. Um, but then I then it went even deeper with the engineer and designer, or I was the designer, but designing it, which was have all these very intricate, detailed things that fix a lot of problems. Uh, I'll give you one small example because I don't want to go ad nauseum and bore everybody. But so when you would hit a button to attack, um, there would be a 500 millisecond delay on your side before you see the animation play. Right. That gives a half a second for it to get to the other person, and then it plays immediately when it gets to the person, so there's no delay on their side. So now you've already given a buffer. Similarly, when you do a move, the game assumes you're doing the next move in a combo because it has string combos. If you do this, it opens up. And so it will start to play the combo on the other side if it hasn't gotten the packet in time. And quite often, you are doing the combo, and so it just catches up as appropriate. Very clever. And we have a lot of things that are a lot more complicated to explain about if you lose it for three seconds or damage is done that wasn't done. But it all worked, and it was a fun game. Um, it was meant to be a lot more, but just like uh, Rice Star and just like this Sega CD uh, Eternal Champions, it came out pretty much around the time when uh, Sega Soft was going to go down. And so it had a few players, no opportunities to do a sequel or to elaborate on it. Um, at that point, it was pretty much dead. I'd already moved on to EA at about that point anyway. Right, right, but, right. Uh, but that was the end of SegaSoft pretty much within a year, I think, after the game came out. Um, so, so, yeah, it's basically SegaSoft. Um, a lot of PC games, no console games, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and other other things, trying to make money, lots like of business opportunities, so... Just, uh, I know it's a bit of a silly question, Eric. These Sega Soft titles, they're, they're, it's all online. There's no physical copies of these games. Is that right? They're, they're, um, you couldn't buy physical copies. Is that right? So uh, in, in some cases, yes, because they're online only, right? So think yeah. of, so uh, years, years later, I worked at a company called Gazillion. They did the Marvel Heroes MMO, if you've ever heard of it. Yep, yep, um, yep. Great, great people, great game. I had such a good time. But um, once the company went under, can't play it. It's done, right? It doesn't exist. And so some games like Netfighter were only for Heat.net, which was part of Segasoft. And so that and games like 10.6 and these other games that uh, other producers in our, in our department did, 
they can't be played because they're only there. Now, games like Emperor of the Fading Suns, the uh, the terribly good, terrible Flesh Feast, uh, you can buy PC games of all those right, because they're yeah. not online only. Yeah. Do you think there's room for, I don't know, because every console's online these days, could they repackage all these games, Sega Soft titles, make it fully online? I, I just think these sort of games, I, I'll be honest, I've never really heard of Sega Soft until we started Arcade Attack, really. Right. It, it went over so many people's heads, and maybe it was ahead of its time. Do you think some there's, there's a case that could be bought back? Yeah, well, so I, I think you made a good point. It's funny because a lot of things you say are actually cases in point to a lot of things I'm trying to say. So you said, I hadn't heard of Segasoft. Well, that's not good for a company if people hadn't heard of you and the person's yeah. a gamer, right? Now, granted, we, we were a different demographic. So if you're playing, you know, Saturn and Dreamcast and PlayStation, then you probably weren't playing our games so much because of the PC titles. But um, but that was, that was a problem. Now, so far as packaging these up, um, you know, uh, in all honesty, I don't think we had a ton of great games. I think that it would just behoove people to do research on them and just buy one of the ones that are out there because you can, yeah, it's very easy to play a Windows 95 game on your computer now. Um, yeah. And uh, so I don't think, it, it would be fun to be able to get Nutfighter running so that you, people could see it. Uh, but again, it's also a game that you really wouldn't want to redo anyway because it was a, it was a game for its time. Yeah. It was a game for its time. It just wouldn't make sense. It's um, yeah. So so I would say no to that. Um, but people can get a lot of these games, and I think that's a good way to kind of relive that. Absolutely. Uh, the Sega Soft story. We could talk hours about it, couldn't we? It's absolutely incredible part of Sega's history, which again I I don't know too much about, but it, it sounds just so interesting. Maybe uh, ahead of its time slightly. The whole online game inside of things. Incredible. Yeah. I, I learned a lot and. Uh, uh, to, to be honest, well, so one thing, by the way, I had an assistant producer, David Gray. Uh, he actually came from our tech department, and he helped me so much, taught me so much, helped a lot with Netfighter and other games. He actually has been an executive producer at Zynga for, I think, like 10 years or something. Um, oh, yeah. he, so he wanted to do something really big. But, um, oh. but I'll, I'll make another anecdote about it, though, is that there's some interesting things with, like, with Netfighter, I was able to go and, and use my kind of martial art connections, and we uh, did video reference of all those all those fighters. Um, that was fun. But um, what was I getting at? Um, losing my train of thought. So help me. Where were we talking well, about? You're too, you're net fight. It's all about your friends oh. helping make net fight. Yeah. yeah thanks. thanks. Uh, I'm I'm having an old man moment. So uh, essentially, Sega and SegaSoft felt a lot different. A lot different. Um, I stayed with Sega Soft because of Mike Latham. See another another example of why I say nothing but good things about him. Um, but also, I got to work with all my other producing team, and they're all good. Um, Greg Beckstead, Eric Quackenbush, um, like I was mentioning earlier, Curtis and those guys. Um, we had a great uh, group, but the energy was different because we were a startup and we were struggling, and we we had our little moments of success, but it was. It was harder, and it was not Sega anymore. Um, and I loved the Sega time. It was like Disneyland. That's why I always go back to that. It's just like such a magical time. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for that. Well, can we talk? I, I kind of 
half hinted there, but why did you leave Sega? And obviously EA, a huge company, Electronic Arts, how did you get the opportunity to work there? And would you be able to explain that to our listeners, Eric? Of course, yeah. So um, it was actually, they had layoffs. So we, I think it was within about six months after the layoffs was, I think they shut down completely. And uh, so we had actually an interim executive producer, because at this time, Mike Latham was also gone. He left a little bit before me. And um, this uh, guy, uh, Greg Suarez, Greg Suarez, he was really cool and uh, he had worked at EA and he knew layoffs were coming. And so he called up his buddies over at EA and they were working on a boxing game yep. and they need a producer and they say, hey, I got this guy who's worked on fighting games and you know he's a kickboxer and blah, blah, blah. And so they happened to be hiring and I got basically within a week of the layoffs, I was working at EA on was knockout kings yeah yeah good game good game yeah yeah and so um i mean that's i don't know how much time you want to spend on that stuff but essentially with knockout kings i was um given full lead design duty which is the first time uh that i was completely committed to like that and also as associate producer so i had both hats kind of um and i worked the internal team who would I would I would put them right up there with the Sega Interactive, like there's the two best internal teams I ever worked with. Nice. Um, we in eight months from scratch, uh, we did is Knockout Kings 2000 for PlayStation. I own um, that. I had that game. It's very there good. you go. Very yes, good. yes, and it was such a fun product to work on. Um, as I mentioned, the team was great, um, and I was giving carte blanche so far as the game content and how it worked, and. Uh, and then I was able to meet all these boxers and all these commentators and stuff, and like so many of them. And uh, and then the game came out. It sold like I think like eight hundred thousand copies and so many good reviews. And then did it again one year later with Knockout Kings two thousand one, which is also for the PlayStation and PlayStation two. Now, as an anecdote, um, PlayStation one it was recognized in a few of the reviews like this is the definitive boxing game for the PlayStation. Like play that one. PlayStation 2, visually way more impressive, obviously, but the uh, the engineer and I, I again not trying to dismirch him, besmirch him, but he did not want to implement the combo system portion of the gameplay for PlayStation 2. Wow! So it was a, it was a series of single blows as opposed to tr- you know right. chaining together yeah. a jab cross hook or whatever else. It makes for a much different game, right? And so PlayStation 2 was actually an inferior game, didn't review as well. But I was glad that the internal team for the sequel, we were able to do PlayStation. So I was still very happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and so I guess I should tell you about some of the celebrities you'd like to oh, hear about. I'd that. love to right? hear it, yeah. I love so it. Let's, let's feed Adrian because, you know, I'm, again, I'm thankful that you're doing this with me. I'm going to make you happy. So um, some of the people you may or may not know. Um, so there's a longtime analyst named Al Bernstein. So he's, he used to do a lot of classic boxing stuff on ESPN. He would talk about, and uh, sweet guy, very gentle. Obviously, he never boxed in his life, but he knew all the stories and stuff. So he and uh, some other people had done some voiceover work for us, right? And um, so I took him out to lunch. He did not want to talk about boxing. It was obviously a person that has done nothing but talk about boxing with boxing people, the people who care about boxing. So he started to ask me, so what movies do you guys like? And so he kept steering it back towards talking about movies, which was fine. And I just thought it was so funny. He's like, yeah, God, the poor guy, he lives yeah. boxing. 
and anyone who meets them wants to talk about boxing, right? You're not going to be like, hey, do you golf, right? People tend to talk yeah. about, yeah. right, what what makes them popular, right? Like, um, like you're not ta- you're not asking me questions about Dungeons and Dragons, right? Because you're here about video games. That's that's yeah, important, yeah, right? yeah. So um, then uh, Teddy Atlas, have you heard of him? Yeah, how about so so Teddy Atlas did um, I believe it was it was Sunday Night Fights I believe he used to commentate but more importantly he was a coach at one point for Mike Tyson and famously he pulled a gun on Mike Tyson at one point so Teddy Atlas not a big guy big scar on his face from some some probably some kind of brawl very New Yorker guy super super nice guy and what I mean by that is he's so genuine that if you are nice to him. He will have you for meals. And I, in fact, I think he even invited us over. He said, if you ever guys ever come to, I forget what state he lives in. Um, but he's someone, if you cross him, you're in trouble. That's why he pulled a gun on Mike Tyson, right? Like, you don't do that. And so um, well, here's the funny story. So he was doing voiceover work and um, the assistant producer I was working with, he had done a lot of the um, uh, commentating script. And uh, I remember this distinctly. So there, there was a part where he says that is supposed to be that's a picture perfect punch, uh, it's something you call out during the game, right during the fight. And um, instead, my assistant producer who didn't know boxing as well as I did put that's a picture punch. Right. And yeah. so we had a guy who was he was really in charge of doing the voiceover to making sure the inflections were right so they, it flows right. And so he read it, and Teddy Atlas, Teddy Atlas he's in the booth. He's like. That, I, that still makes sense. Yeah. No, just please read it, right? So, long story short, now I was there, and I don't know exactly how or why. I think I think I might have tried to intervene, but for whatever reason, the the guy in charge was like, no, 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 I'm doing this, right? And so I was like, well, maybe we just won't use it. I was, I was thinking in the back of my head, we'll just won't use it. So Teddy Atlas was obviously getting more and more agitated in the booth, because here he goes, a guy who's he's lived boxing yeah. his whole life, yeah. Yeah. he was boxing inside and out, and he has this dweeby guy telling him to say things that are incorrect that oh, are not man. appropriate and so the guy literally when he's done he sensed that hostility right. the commentator the, the the guy working on the sound he got up and he left quickly teddy Ellis comes out and says where is he where's that guy i was talking to he literally wanted to get in the guy's face and the guy sensed it and the guy ran away from him so it was fine. And then I took him out. We had, you know, dinner and he's kind of sweet guy. But it's funny because he's, again, he's a guy you don't want to get on his bad side. Right? Yeah. Um, now what else? Um, well, can I ask actually, what, what was the final commentary they got at the end of the game? Did they fix it in the end or is it literally a pitcher punch at the end we, of the game? We definitely did. Okay. So when I say definitely, it's 20 years ago. Um I definitely didn't want it in, and I definitely remember saying let's not put it in. I don't think it got in. Right. Okay. But you never know. You never. You know, know. it might it might pop in there like very rarely, maybe because I would have been playtesting it and said, "Hey, why is this in here?" So yeah. it would have been rare if it's in there. Um, but uh, and so then, of course, met a lot of the the boxers, right? Now there's other commentators and things that I met, right? Um, Sean O'Grady and other people, um, but uh, uh, Shane Mosley. Who was uh, welterweight champion briefly? Um, you may have remembered he fought De La Hoya and stuff. Um, right, and yeah. uh, super nice guy. So these are the things that you like, right? So when you have people that you look up to, and you meet them, like, wow, this guy's super nice. He was so nice, and I gave him a tour of Yay. He shot some hoops and stuff when I took him down to our um, gymnasium area. 
uh, and I was with him for like an hour and just like talking to me, like just conversational about our families and whatever. And and he was still pretty young then. He's like maybe like 25 or something. Yeah. And uh, he was super cool. And but a, and a funny story. Um, and it's not this doesn't clown him because I don't know who's behind it. But after he won the championship, we were invited to his celebration in uh, L.A. And so we went there and they had a warehouse and, and a big all these signs up and stuff. And up there it said, congratulations with a D. Uh. So <laughs> unfortunately, it's probably someone who doesn't do this for a living that has said that. I'm like, that's, that's cool. I didn't see that. Um, and uh, so then uh, saw Jake LaMotta um, at a party, but he was at that point already super drunk. Um, and, but he was... You know, it was just cool just to see him because, I mean, talk about legend, right? Yeah. I mean, if, and again, I don't know how far you go back for boxing knowledge, but, I mean, he, you know, he fought uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, I think, like, seven times or something. Like, he was, like, you know, obviously Raging Bull movie, right? Um, and then uh, and then other people. So people I got to talk to were the more recent guys, right? The guys from, like, 20 years ago or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the guys that were really nice. So um, Fernando Vargas. He also was, uh, I think it was like middleweight, um, also super nice. He's obviously like from a East LA kind of background, but man, he was so respectful and just really nice. And like, again, like, I'm glad you're champion, dude. You're a nice guy, you know? Um, and uh, there's others, but the one, I guess the last one I would mention is um, uh, Floyd Mayweather. Oh, wow, so, what a name. <laughs> yeah, so this is before he was super famous. Um, he actually is... Uh, what was his record then? I don't remember. But um, he was up and coming, and obviously we all knew he was going to be something. And so um, we had done um, motion capture shoots, and we'd done um, body scanning and face scanning for a character, right? Um, by the way, it was really cool. I was able to direct the motion capture shoots for the boxing game. Nice. Working with these real boxers that I had looked up to was really cool because – they know how to do the moves, and I was like, "Oh, we need a, a you know a, a slip left, or we need a hook to the body, and you know." And they we, we coordinated all those things together. But back to my story about Floyd was that we we're doing. Uh, we had a bunch of boxers come in, do the body scannings, the face can scannings, and it was uh, a lot of a fair amount of press was there, and we were taking some pictures, and uh, Floyd was the rudest most oh. self-centered guy you would ever meet like he was like oh. he acted he acted like we were nothing it was like uh, even back then he had an ego and this is the only person in this entire podcast i will speak bad at partially right. because again i'll go back to type a right so in his defense the re the way you become an undefeated superstar mega fight champion is by being that kind of intensive guy yeah yeah often and so i would equate part of that to just the way he was but man i was like Wow, I don't like this guy very much. So, um, yeah, but then again, I was able to meet. Uh, unfortunately, I, I should have looked up before we talked, but there was a famous um, Irish boxer that uh, did the UK commentating, and I went to the UK and I met him to do the voiceover there. Um, so, there's a million, so I could spend half an hour trying to figure out his name. But he was also a super nice guy, and I wish I remembered his name because otherwise now it's just me talking about some guy that I met in the UK. But um, yeah, but uh, the whole thing was a lot of fun, and uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll truncate the rest because this is more retro game stuff, right? Is that uh, I had then got uh, a little bit too big for my bridges, 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 
when uh, I thought I should be promoted and get all this stuff for all the work I'd done and success. So I left and I worked for a THO, THQ on company. Didn't go so well. They didn't have a producer there, which is a big red flag because right. right, right, right. they don't want producers if you come in. And so then I went back to uh, I went back to my old boss from EA who uh, was working at a mobile game company. Uh, later became Glue. You heard of Glue? Yeah, that does so Glue, yeah. Glue has like the Kardashian game. They, they're yeah. very successful. It was not called Glue back then, but was it there at the very beginning when there's like maybe like 10 people. Um, and then, but then opportunity came to go back to EA, uh, which I jumped at. They also had things, uh, things that Glue weren't perfect anyway, but EA is like, I loved EA. And I worked on um, casual games for nine years, wow. um, working for, uh, working on Pogo games, pogo.com. Um, casual games, um, great. Like, I, I would say the top three experiences I had was probably EA, Sega, and Gazillion. And EA the second time was probably even better because I had so many good people that I worked with for so many years and was able to do, I designed, I was the sole designer on about a dozen games and I worked with small teams. It was a great environment. People really upbeat, um, loved it there. Later on, I went on and well, worked at Bend and Amco for two and a half years in the mobile division. Uh, worked, as I've mentioned a few times, at Gazillion and Marvel Heroes. As a big comic book guy, it was a dream. They they only lasted about two years after I was there. Um, and then I was a cryptic briefly for about a year. Right, right. Uh, and then more recently, I took a break because my new baby was born. Because uh, I also had that kickboxing gym, right? Impact, these guys here. Um, and so I had income, so it was okay. Um, but then more recently, uh, an interesting tie into Sega. Um, oh, I should go back to Gazillion. At Gazillion, I work with two Sega people. So two legends, yeah. Two legends, absolute legends. So one was a guy I knew pretty conversationally was Ed Nunziata. He was a producer for, of course, Echo the Dolphin. Um, I believe you're going to be talking to him at some point as well. Yeah, yeah. Really, yep. Yeah, hopefully, in the next few weeks, uh, or at least the next month or so. Yeah, we're going to get right. him on hopefully. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just. Him and Latham, like they did so many things for Sega, right? They did a lot of great things. And so um, I worked with him briefly on a, helping him design a Star Trek game, uh, Star Trek Discovery, yeah. uh, that never happened because the game, the company shut down. And uh, and then also though, I don't want to say more importantly, but as a, a big wow, the chairman of the board, about 10 feet from where I was sitting, was Tom Kalinske, CEO of Sega. I found out later he had been out of the industry pretty much since Sega. And so then here it is, is my first memories of him were Sega. And since then he hadn't worked in the video game industry, comes back, he didn't remember me, of course. You know, again, I was a I was a boots on the ground guy making games, but I reminisced with him. And again, what a sweet man. Oh my God, I mean, he's such a cool guy. If you watched interviews with him, he's a very nice, kind person. And uh, I was telling him about, oh, that's just great memories that I, just told you about with the Sega commercials and the all hands meetings and stuff. Um, so it was cool to work with them. Um, Full, the circle. Full yeah. circle. Yeah, it's, it's great. So it was just so cool to see him again. And then the reason I jumped back was because more recently, about six months ago, um, a former intern from Sega, Seth Gerson, he came in and uh, I got to know him. He worked on like one game with me and uh, he contacted me. He said, hey, I'm CEO of this video game company and uh, we normally do VR games, but now we're gonna do a console game. Can you come in as a game design consultant on this boxing game we're doing? 
And so for the last six months, I've been working with a very talented, really good team uh, on, it's called uh, Creed Champions Big Rumble Boxing. And Great. so it's, yeah. it's the Creed license. It has all of the Rocky characters. Um, and you have like, you can play Clever, you can play uh, Drago, all the guys in the recent movies. Um, the game looks great. Uh, they're, we're working on, a, I think, a first day patch after the break. Um, is, that the VR, is that the VR one or is that? Is that... No, it's not. So uh, they do have a Creed VR game. That's, yeah, that's one I've heard of, yeah. Yep, yep. And that's also a good game, but it's a completely different game. So the reason they brought me on is because this is a flat screen fighter. This is, you either play the AI, which is more likely nowadays with COVID, right? Uh, but you can play two-player. Um, and uh, and so the, the idea is taking their license and exercising it in a way that somebody that might want to play a boxing game, granted a very casual, fun boxing game, um, it breaks a lot of rules. It's just a fun, crazy game. Um, but once you understand what it is, you'll you'll enjoy it. It's its own it's its own thing. It's a different it's a different experience. Eric, I I, I gotta stop that. I'm the biggest Rocky fan ever. Um, oh, I'm wow. so, I'm a huge fan of Rocky. I could talk about it all day. And are you a fan as oh. well? I know. You... Oh yeah, of course. So um, I of course I've seen them all. Yeah. Um, and some of them more times than you know, a few. I think my very favorite was probably three. Oh, I love that because, one. Because I mean, Clubber Lang was just such. He was just such a hurricane from his acting to his look to the way that they personified him in the ring. Uh, he was just a beast. And uh, and it was just so fun. Yeah, but I watched them all. And then everybody loves that story, right? The underdog story, you know, getting back up. And um, and I think especially if you look at like Balboa, uh, right? You remember Balboa, right? I mean, he, he's he's really at Crete. He's taken it to such a mature level. Yes, yes. To, to, because, I mean, geez, the first four, four or five movies were extremely, well, actually the first movie wasn't, but they started getting really campy. It did get right? a little bit 80s, didn't it? Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah, but that, but for their time, that, that's what it needed to be, and it was just great. Like you know, Ivan Drago just glistening with whatever they greased him up with, and stuff. <laughs> you know, and all those lines, right? I mean, oh my god. So, so yeah, so I was excited to work on it, it but I, I don't want to misrepresent, especially for you who might play it now. Um, the characters are there, and it's a very fun game, and you'll see some things that are like, oh, that kind of feels a little bit like Mike Tyson, or not Mike Tyson, Clubber Lang, or Ivan Drago, or whoever else. Creed, but it's, yeah, yeah. it's its own game. It's a fun beat-em-up. Uh, but it's well done. Is it it's out well yet? Sorry, did, is it, are you working on it still? Uh, yeah, so we're doing a first-day patch. Uh, I believe it's like the end of this month. And then I think it comes out, let's say, April? March? It's nice. So, yeah, uh, is it is it on consoles and PC? Can you reveal that, or is it still? So they, they've announced. I I checked. Otherwise, they're not be talking about all this right, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, NDA. They'd be like shoot me in the head instead of paying me, right? So uh, they had announced it, and so um, it's gonna be on PC, uh, Switch, um, uh, Xbox, and PlayStation. Oh, I'm getting uh, it. I'm getting it. I'm yeah. I'm I'm yeah. I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure it's all those four. Yes. Oh. And uh, so, yeah. And um, feel free to contact me if you need tips as well. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it's cool. These, it, games are very interesting beasts, right? So a lot of games I will design from the start, and I'll try and think of all the permutations ahead of time so that when the unknown comes, you're more prepared. You have a very solid foundation. Other, other games, 
are a lot different nowadays. They're more iterative. They have a basic concept and they just keep iterating and then the developers don't know until the end what's going to be. Um, this one is a, a little bit of the second one. And so what it ended up being was this really cool, fun game that's very uh, approachable um, for casual players, Good. but doesn't try to be a hardcore boxing game like Knockout Kings. Does not try to be the quintessential Rocky homage because it assumes a lot of people don't know Rocky aside from the look. So, um, but it's still, you're still playing them. One thing you might enjoy, so, um, is that they have a story mode for all the all the main characters and some other new main characters. And the story mode, it's, um, it's this really fun uh, parody of the world. And so you'll have characters that never fought each other or did, would not intersect. Creed could fight Ivan Drago, for example, not not his not his son. And but they worked this out in a storyline way. And because it's so nonsensical, it's a, it's sometimes it's like a dream kind of sequence or something crazy. Nice. Nice. There's this great moment. I, I told the developers when I was reading. So this great moment where uh, between fights um, something happens, and I, I, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but Nobody here's played it yet, so nobody can call me on it. Is that essentially there's one part where um, they they talk about um, I think it's Creed is about to fight Ivan Drago, and um, oh no no Creed's about to fight somebody, and they're talking about Ivan Drago, and then um, I said oh yeah you know I know my my father killed your your dad, and then Ivan Drago comes in he goes yeah sorry about that, right and um, and so like. Like, obviously, they wouldn't do stuff like that. And then, oh, okay, I remember what it was now. So um, this was with, um, now I'm going to lose all your listeners here because I'm going off too much of a tangent. Essentially, it involved um, Apollo Creed, who was already dead. Yes. And they brought him back. And so he said, he said, yeah, I had to pull three strings, but I'm back. I can make the fight. Love it. Right? So so it related to all the, con- all, all the conversation about, sorry, I killed your dad. But then he's like, no, no, I'm back. I can fight. I had to pull some strings. Like, what strings did you pull, the devil, right? So that's what I mean, right? So you will enjoy it and that you'll get you'll get the jokes. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. he's dead. Uh, but it's certainly not Rocky. It's 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 some parody. So hopefully I didn't just lose all your listeners with that no, last. No, well, look, they, they, okay. I'm, guilty, I'm guilty of always swinging it back to Rocky talk anyway. So half our listeners are like, oh, it's typical Adrian. I know. Bring a crowbar and Rocky in somehow. A little it, Before we move on, it, somehow, if you can, try and get the Rocky IV robot in there as a playable character, Eric. Uh, That's my dream. That is I my wish, dream. Yeah. I wish you would have brought it up. So I will tell the team, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler. He's not in there. All but right. uh, because they're so far along, they might do expansion. So I will bring that up. I will bring that up to, to the CEO. And so if, if, if it's going to happen, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a message and let you know. I'm getting that I game. About, I forgot about the robot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people try to, I think, sometimes, to be fair. Yeah. Um, let, before we finish, got some quick-fire social media questions, because I, I chucked on Facebook and Twitter that I'm going to interview. Is that all right? And some, some of the stuff you kind of mentioned already, to be fair, but we sure. can quickly go over it. So the first person is Jump Cancel, who is another podcast who covers gaming, and he says, uh, Rystar came so late in the Mega Drive's lifespan, even after Sega Saturn was released. Uh, was development a little more relaxed for the older system, or was it the usual deadline rush? Now you kind of answered that, but right. was it was it was it still a rush to get Rystar finished, or is it a bit more sort of well chilled out? Well, yeah. So um, granted, this is a, a Sega of Japan game, so probably the rush probably came in Japan because yeah. we get it at a point when it's pretty well done, or at least you know done enough that we can go through test plans and stuff, right? Um, I'm assuming this is my assumptions because 
the system was already kind of dying. They probably wanted out as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, and uh, we always had marketing tied into stuff. And so a lot of times marketing would just dictate, release it by this date. And so they would already have that lined up and for better, for worse, they would make most of the dates. Um, so yeah, for that part, we already talked about the first part, right? Which yeah, is, like, yeah. yes, he's right. Uh, and it was, again, it was trying to be like a Donkey Kong and try and get a little more life into Sega Genesis. Yeah. Um, but it was a good game, but I don't think it did that. Uh, so another one of our really loyal listeners, Todd, he says, yeah, ask him why the Hakuna Matata log waterfall level was so hard in Lion King. So I I, uh, I think I did some testing on that. Yeah. Other than that, I just played it because I remember it's brutal because, as you know, I don't know maybe you do know. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a tough game. Yeah, it's like famously difficult, right? Because you're going up and then if you don't make a jump, then you're going down again. As you could literally be playing that thing for an hour, that one part. Um, so that, that, of course, had nothing to do with uh, anything I did, and I don't know anybody that worked on it. Um, I, I will say this. So, and you know, as a retro guy, a lot of games were made to be a challenge to the players, yeah. right? So a big change that happened sometime in the early 2000s was that games were made to be finished and enjoyable and retriable, not games you just can't beat. Um, it used to be back in the 90s, you'd say, hey, did you ever beat that game? I beat it on hard mode. Oh, my God, dude, you're a badass, right? So um, I think it was still part of that mindset. Now, why they would do it for a game that I could see a lot of kids playing, <laughs> I don't know. Because, you know, I could see, I could see a six-year-old playing that game and, like, crying, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's famously hard. I do remember that part. It's a good platform, though, to be fair. Uh, but, yeah, that level, <laughs> that's killer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Latham, friend of the show and friend. Yes. There you go. He chips in. He's already asked before. He says, ask him why he's so good looking. Oh. It's very annoying. <laughs> and also he says, beyond Eternal Champions, I would ask Eric what game in his long career he thinks defines him. And he, he, he goes on in brackets, uh, Eternal Champions, Dark Side on the Sega City doesn't exist without him. So big praise right. there, Michael. Right. Well, uh, if I could ever claim I was handsome, that ended long ago. So thank you for that comment, Mike. But um, so far as uh, games, so I think I kind of mentioned it, but maybe not specifically. So Eternal Champions CD was my best experience so far as we're doing it, we did it, we shipped it. I love this game, I love the team. It's, it's a magical time at Sega. My proudest achievement would be Knockout Kings 2001 for the reason I mentioned earlier, uh, was just because um, I was lead designer. I was also producer, so I had both hats. Um, I enjoyed the team. Um, we had success. EA really supports their teams really well. Um, you don't have to, uh, you know, kind of scrimp and try to figure things out. You have people to help you. So it'll probably be that. Good answer. Um, he also also asked him about his love of D and D and why yes. he's a secret geek. But we yes. haven't got loads of time to talk about D and D. But um, I, I don't want to kill you with that. I, I can make it really short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, we, it's something I want to play. A lot of my friends play it, so this could be an opportunity. Yeah. Well, so this, this, I'm not even going to talk about D&D in any length at all. So um, something I love to tell people is that back when I was, did I say 13, um, I like comic books, yeah. video games, Dungeons & Dragons, and martial arts. All of those things back when I was 13 were not things that you would tell people about. You would not tell people, you play video games like, Dork, play video games, grow up, you know. Um, 
Uh, well, actually, I, I'm gonna, I'll go a little fa farther. I'll say 16 because then 13-year-old, you. you do whatever you want. When you get older, you're like, why aren't you hanging out with people and doing uh, like playing uh, sports or whatever, right? Martial arts back when I was younger, there's no UFC yet. People made fun of you like Karate Kid or something like that. Comic books, you would hide them inside of your Trapper Keeper at school. Not people know you read comic books once you got older. And um, and D and D was the biggest uh, taboo of all. Like yeah. you, would, you would you would not like your D and D friends would not talk about D and D in public because it was just such a nerdy thing. So what's cool about all that is all those things are very popular now. All of them. I mean, uh, just MCU movies. Right, I worked on a you know that MMO for, for Marvel. Um, UFC is huge. I have a kickboxing gym that people go to to work out. Um, D and D is of course huge. They have the biggest probably amount of players ever at this point right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and video games, you have to see anything else about video games. So it's just funny how all the things that made me a complete dork and loser are things that are now the coolest ever. Yeah. So that's what I'll say about that. Be proud. Be proud, yeah. Eric and Kyle. Yeah, I agree. We're all big geeks in Arcade Attack, and we're, we're proud of it. You know, nothing to be ashamed of. Um, the Sagaholic says, did he have any input into the Saturn port of Virtual Fire? And if so, what challenges did he and his team face in bringing the title home, I assume, from the arcades? Right. So, again, I think as, and I've said it a few times now, you already know, uh, most SOJ titles, the producers shouldn't uh, take yeah. a whole lot of credit for it. Um, you know, except for the three quarters of the script that I did for uh, Blazing Heroes, really not much else. Um, and I did, I I may have been credited somehow with that, uh, but if anything, it's helped with test. Oh, fair enough. Um, Sega Universe asks, what does he think, or Eric, what do you think of Sega's many great IPs, and which of these games uh, do you think could translate well into modern releases? And why why do you think we've seen quite a lack of it recently for Sega releasing their IPs? Yeah, I mean, those are all good questions, and uh, I don't know what's going on with the company Sega nowadays. Um, you know, again, I think that there's still a lot of potential with the people like you who are still of an age where you're very active in video games and have the nostalgia yeah. to bring those back in different ways with, uh, well, they don't they wouldn't need to do a Kickstarter, but maybe they should to then hedge their bets um, or hedge their hogs, get it? So, um, but I think... Uh, as to which games, um, I, I think, I mean, Sonic's been done over and over again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I, but I, I, I would say this, and I don't have any design ideas on that. Like, I certainly have not been thinking about it, but the, the, the intense speed and the thrill and the putting together of motion and, you know, getting rings and, and having moments where, oh, you just, you know, lost them all or whatever, all those things, that excitement level and that, that energy that you have in the Genesis, um, isn't really done in games right now. Like there's games that are fast in parts and things, but um, you might think of like some some of the power drift games from like that are really crazy crash em up games. But um, I would think something like a Sonic, if it's done right, and I know it's been a lot, but that could be good. Um, all the virtual stuff, those are interesting because those are those are a game again a game of their time. They're like wow, it's a 3D game, right? Yeah. So, um, but I think that if you reskin it. And again, they've been reskinned. I mean, Virtual Fighter, how many versions they had of Virtual Fighter? Um, I think they could do things with that and take it to another level, not not just try and reskin it and add characters. Um, and yeah, I mean, and maybe you could do something cool, like some kind of strange game where it combines several of them somehow. Um, 
again, I don't have any ideas, but but I think yes, I think that um, the nostalgia and the the, the content is there, yeah. and I think that it, I think it could be do, could be good, good stuff. Uh, I've got two. So Lowell Mohammed and Adam K. They ask the same question. Do you do you have a favorite character from the Virtual Fighter series and why? Easily Kage. Okay. Kage Maru. So the guy's a freaking ninja, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be a ninja? Especially back when it first came out. Um, he's got that cool kind of dragon tail sweep where he knocks a person off their feet. He has that kind of aerial backflip kick, which is like Bruce Lee did in Enter the Dragon. Um, and you do those when you when you pull them off back then. Because the game, definitely not a simulation, but it felt a lot like a simulation, the way it played. And so when you pull it off, it's like pulling off the move in a real fight. You're like, wow, I got you, you know? Um, so yeah, he's he's definitely the coolest to me. I did like, um, Jesus Christ, uh, was it Wolf, right? The the wrestler? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That so cool. yeah, I yeah. liked him as well, um, but uh, Bakage for sure. And Oscar, we spoke about Oscar earlier. He's chipped in because yes. he's he's listened to um, the, the the Michael Lathan podcast in the past. He's and he, I think he answers already. To be fair, but he asked, please talk about a good story about Flesh Feast, uh, the best <laughs> zombie game in history. Ha ha! I think a little tongue in cheek there. Um, but yeah, you kind of mentioned that already. But giving Oscar a bit of a shout there. But Flesh Feast, what a great story. I mean, yeah, yeah. We, could could there, could there be a sequel? You never know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh, it, it was. It was a game that the ambitions were there. I would say that, and one more comment about that is, the things that I've learned from that and since then, I think I could have helped make a much, much better game. You know, uh, really? Oh yeah, I mean, it would have pared it down. Said, whoa, wait, we can't do all this. Like, we don't have the time. We can't make sure that this type, you can't play uh, real-time strategy plus control your character in different modes. Uh, we, we need to figure out a way to make it look the best it can because uh, the, the graphics were also not good. That that initial uh, graphic I told you about when the guy comes up, yeah, it yeah. pretty much looked like that at ship. It wasn't like it really got better. Um, okay. And so basically making the design smaller, focusing on the most important parts, and then I probably it probably would have been more like a Dead Rising where it'd be like, you'd be a character as yeah. opposed to even like having a cast of characters. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I learned my lesson. It's just funny how this game... It still like lingers. I've I've released about fifty games if you count all the mobile games I worked on. Right, right. And that's the one that always comes up. What about Flesh Feast? The infamous Flesh Feast, yeah. Yeah. Um, the final question from our social media was uh, Dudley Ode Yesterzine. What a lovely name. And he, and this I'd love to know this actually. Is it true uh, that you guys or Sega found out that Sonic Spinball had music they couldn't use at the very last minute? Is there any truth in that? So uh, I don't know if I remember this from being an assistant producer or just being there, but I remember that this happened. Wow. Um, I don't, but I don't know anything else. Like I wasn't, I didn't get any emails or I wasn't in any meetings, but I do, I do remember that they had to pull it off the shelf and put in a new one uh, with proper, proper music. But you don't know the reason why it was pulled. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah. I, I could look it up and then it'd be like doing the same thing you guys are doing. So I. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know anything, but I just remember that, yeah. It must have been quite costly, then, I assume. Um, I've got two final questions there. It's been a great chat. I've really enjoyed this. But my, my penultimate question is, um, and you kind of spoke about the projects you're working on at the moment, but was there any games you've worked on that were never released uh, in the past that you will think, and you kind of look back and go, ah, this would have been a good game? Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've had the, um, the fortune of having the vast majority of games I've worked on get released. And I've had friends in the industry who've worked two or three two or three years on a single title that then they got killed. 
And not only is that completely disheartening, but also it's terrible for your career because what's your resume? Oh, I've worked on a game that ever released for the last two years, right? Yeah, yeah. So it makes your life harder. Um, and so I feel for all those guys a lot. Um, they're the only one. So there's a few at Bandai Namco um, because we had a shift in leadership. Uh, but these were all pretty much in concept stages. So, I mean, yep. that's like anything. But I'd written an entire treatment for um, Jagged Alliance for the mobile. Are you familiar with that game? Yeah, is it a shooting game or? So it is a, a turn-based strategy game where you okay. manage a squad of mercenaries on this island. You also kind of do a resource management, can kind of control parts of the island. Um, and famously, it has some really crazy characters that will do things on their own. So you could hire a guy for cheap, but by the way, he's also wanted for murder, and he will—he might actually knife one of your players if he decides he's mad uh, of your character. So, um, so I wrote a whole treatment for that, but that got canceled. Um, and then the only other one was, as I told you, that Gazillion got shut down. Yeah. And um, I was working on, so I'd done the uh, Doctor Strange um, adventure tying with the movie, and that was a, a joy, and it, it it was well received and whatever. Then I was working on one for Thor Ragnarok. Right. And, wow. Yeah, so I'd done the entire, so the difference in some of the later stages of my design career was that uh, I worked with tools. I actually implemented the stuff as opposed to having a paper design and giving direction. I was actually in there doing the stuff. And so I was able to put together a whole sequence of things. And you've seen the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, very similar storyline, but we actually didn't know the full story back then. Marvel doesn't give it to you. It's very, very... Uh, you know, very cloak and dagger kind of thing. So uh, I had a similar story though. And so at the end, you end up defeating Hela and you team up with the three, remember his, his three guys, right? And then also um, Sif, Lady Sif. And then when you're done and you, you get your loot, because it plays like Diablo, I don't know if you ever know the game. It plays a lot like Diablo loot. You get your loot, the game's over, and then before you exit that adventure, you can actually go around and talk to the NPCs, right? And so, uh, I had implemented a, a part where you know, could talk to each one of them, and they were talking character. Like the the the, the big fat guy Heimdall would talk about, oh, I want to get a, you know something to eat, or I want to get hamburgers, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. whatever. But the reason I go to, at, to this long story setup, which was that um, you're talking to one of them, and uh, uh, the, he says, um, oh, she wanted to be Hela, queen of the nine realms, but instead she's Hela disappointed. <laughs> Very right? good. So I was unable. To put that into a game because uh, what happened was I did my work, and then all this, all the people that were going to put in the art and all these other things, they were not allowed to actually complete it. Uh, um, but you know what? That's fine. I mean, I I consider myself incredibly blessed uh, for all the stuff I've been able to do. Um, so that's totally fine. It's a hell of a shame it didn't get released. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yes. Eric really 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 great chat and thank you we've got okay. fi one final question but it's been such an honor sure. and it, it's been such you know i love to hear the stories and sega and and ea to be fair and then, um, we are we, we the way ea has gone recently we're a little bit yep. I, I think I'm speaking, they, you know the, the microtransactions but they still so hold a this, big part this is old ea when they weren't as they weren't as bad <laughs> so, but you weren't you weren't working there when trip was there is that right trip would have left by then trip Hawkins. He, was, he was he'd already had digital chocolate at that point his yeah. mobile his mobile game company yeah so cool. I, I never did meet trip yeah, yeah, another another legend. Um, but my final question, because we all I ask all the guests this, um, if you could share a few drinks with any video game character, who would you choose and why? Wow. Um, so 
I think it, it would definitely be a different answer every decade you would have asked me, right? Like, yeah. it would be different. Uh, so, um, the things, the games that stick with me nowadays are adventure games, right? Yes. Because they have evolving stories and characters, and the characters go through things. It's like watching a movie, right? But you're that character, or you're watching or controlling this character. So, this will be a really um, obtuse one, uh, but I'll tell you why. So, um, Lee Everett, do you know what that is? So Lee Everett was a protagonist in the Telltale Games Walking Dead first season. I've heard of them, haven't played them. Okay, so um, can I give you a spoiler? Yeah, go for it. All right. Go for it. Um, so anybody who might want to play the game, you might want to mute me in a second. But um, so the, basically, the guy has a path of redemption throughout the whole thing. And he somehow is being... Uh, accused of murder, he may or may not have done, um, and he's kind of gloom, uh, a gloomy character. And then he meets this little girl, Clementine, who's by herself. And so he basically does everything he can to keep her alive and goes through the stories of interacting with other characters. And at the very end, after playing for a long time, it's a long game, um, and uh, get to the end of it, he gets bit. And um, he had developed this very fatherly relationship with Clementine, the little girl, over all this time. And it's a point where he chains himself to this pipe and says, just go, right? And then you're now playing Clementine, and you have a choice. You have your gun. You can either shoot him oh. so he doesn't turn into a zombie, or you can just leave and so you don't have to go through killing him, right? And so my younger daughter, so I have two daughters, right? I have one who's two now and one who's uh, 19. And my younger daughter, who then was like 14 or 13 at that time, she was watching the whole thing with me. And got to the end, and I pulled the trigger because I was thinking that's it's horrible yeah, yeah. to let him turn zombie. And I shit you not, I cried. I literally I cried for yeah. the first time in a video game. And so, aside from bringing him back to life, the reason I wanted to talk to Lee was I would just want to know about what was his past life. And you did such yeah. a good thing. You kept Clementine alive, and you're my hero. You know, so it's like he's a real person. And so I would just want to connect with him and understand him and tell him that he, he his life mattered and stuff because it was such a sad story. See, I'm getting, yeah. you can tell I'm getting emotional. Oh, now. yeah, nice. This guy is trying to redeem himself and trying to muddle through the, the land of the walking dead with this little girl, and uh, he does everything he can. The very end, he gets bit, right? And so um, it was just such a great character, and I would love to just talk to him to just connect with him. Were you a bit annoyed by the, the ending, or do you think it was very clever ending because it does sound quite intense so they have several seasons of of that right um yeah, yeah. and i played i think the first three um and they're all great and so you know the walking dead is famously heartbreaking i've seen right? this i've seen the first two or three series yeah I, I oh wait are you, talking about the, are you talking about no so we're talking about two different things now so are we talking about the game or no, yeah, the, the, the game the game itself which you okay yeah yeah so um the the game i think it wanted to make Clementine the protagonist. And so Lee did have to somehow be extricated from the story at some point. Um, and I don't mind it. So as a player, uh, I want to hurt a little bit because I get motivated, yeah. right? Like I still remember playing Max Payne. Oh, I love and, that game. And at the very beginning, there's this dream sequence where his baby and his wife get murdered. And I got like, so like I was in the zone 
I was like, I'm going to get revenge. You know, like I was Max Payne at that point. And because I was upset that this had happened, right? And so um, I, it motivated me. And then when I played subsequent games with Clementine, because the game of, of making decisions, I wanted to make sure that she had the right people around her, that she did the things that she thought were right, things would keep her alive. Uh, and so I was super invested in that character as opposed to like, you know, Streets of Rage, right? Yeah. It's yeah, a much yeah. different experience, you know? So um, sure. I, I didn't play the last season of The Walking Dead Telltale. Um, I know that Telltale, of course, they went under, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but somebody picked it up and finished it. And so um, I'm interested to finish it. Uh, but I loved season two. And I think I finished season three. I don't remember. But I, I, I enjoyed them. I, I played their Monkey Island ones. Uh, I do respect them. Um, I love adventure games as well, Eric. I think they're brilliant. They, 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 they mean so much to me as well, like the classic LucasArts games. I can talk about them all day. Um, well, look, we'll, we'll leave it there, Eric. It's been such a great chat, and I really appreciate the stories. It's been really honest and really interesting, and, uh, and I do appreciate the support behind the scenes as well. You've been really good. Uh, our listeners might not know this, but you've been really good giving feedback and chipping in, and it means a lot, so thank you. Of course, yeah. No, and again, you know what? Everybody here needs to know if they don't know by listening to you you guys are doing a huge service for the retro people right because you're keeping the games alive the conversations alive and also these interviews now granted you're interviewing us now but in 20 30 years from now like a lot of us will be gone and so you have interviews with these people talking about that that era like you would think about interviews with people worked on star wars back in the 70s right now granted I didn't work on Star Wars, but you know what I'm saying, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys do something amazing. So thank you. And I'm honored. Again, as I'd said before, our um, our podcast here was that if I didn't have all the people around me, the artists, the engineers, the, all the talent, the QA people, um, I would just be a guy with ideas, right? And so um, I'm honored to be able to speak, hopefully, to those games and their efforts as well. Not so much like what I did, right? Just that I was a part of that ride. So thank you for letting me share Bless you. No, it's a very nice way of finishing the interview. Eric, thank you, and um, hopefully we'll get you back in the future, you know? Right, buddy. Yeah? Thank you. Anytime, buddy. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at ArcadeAttackUK, at KeithBarlow82, and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ArcadeAttackUK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.